0: Welcome to episode 42 of The Roger Snipes Show. The Rod Roger, Roger Snipes Show. Yo, what's good, everybody? We are back again. Today's episode is going to be really interesting. Um, it's going to be on brain health. And... I'm just fascinated with everything to do with the brain. I'm fascinated. Um, I think I've had an interest in it because <laughs> I had a strong belief at one stage that my brain was not capable of achieving much. Probably because i done extremely poorly in school and um, it was like my um, life mission to try to... <sighs> Enhance my, my brain performance In some way or another So yeah, today's guest is going to be Really interesting And uh, we'll come to him in a second But first of all I just want to cover a few things First of all, I want to talk about my fitness app Um, It's It's <laughs> It's so, so close To being complete In fact, yesterday I uh, I <sighs> received a message from the developers that you know there was a few glitches that needed to be fixed and they were like okay it's ready uh you can now announce it and then I announced it and put the link in my bio and then they were like oh there's a few things we need to change uh yeah you're gonna have to take it down I was like really oh man so um it's like any day now any day the app is going to be ready so I just wanted to let you guys know if you haven't submitted your email yet so that I can notify you that it is ready just uh, click the link in my bio and look for Roger Snipes app or I think it's just called um, fitness app yeah just look for fitness app and um, click on it and just uh, put your email address and I will notify you once it is ready as I said it is very soon Okay, so bear with me. Okay, Um, I wanted to also give a quick shout or a quick mention to one of the sponsors of the show which is Drink HRW. Uh, So what they specialize in is, well, they have a few different supplements but one of my favorite ones which I use every day is their Molecular Hydrogen Water. Uh, That there is just super incredible. Um, So what it is, is it's basically water infused with hydrogen gas. So they have these effervescent tablets which you put in the water and it produces hydrogen gas. So evidence shows (laughs) it is the most powerful molecule we can supplement with to help us fight and protect us from daily stresses now this can be physical stress or mental stress and i've had both of them now after my experience uh, during training uh, i can give true testament to its incredible uh, fatigue eliminating <laughs> abilities and energy providing too it's it's amazing every time i have a training session rather than uh, your normal typical Typical pre-workout formula, I would have an effervescent or shall I say hydrogen water and man, it's like I'm training and training and training and training and I just don't get fatigued or if I do, then it's like I bounce back super quick, it's like recovery is amazing, I'm thinking really, it's just hydrogen in water, I don't get it, I can't give you the science to it and tell you why All I know is that it's great and it works. So, um, oh, and another thing is nights like this, it is, I'm recording this and it's uh, almost one. It's like quarter to one in the morning. And um, normally when I go to bed super late, when I wake up in the morning, it's, it's, I'm always getting a headache. It's, it's like guaranteed. But if I have the hydrogen water before I sleep, when I wake up, it doesn't happen. I wake up feeling fresh now if you drink i'm not saying that this will be a formula to eliminate hangovers but i think it could possibly help um i couldn't you don't vouch me on that i i can't give you a true testament on that because i don't drink (laughs) but um yeah it's incredible so if you decide you want to pick up um one of these effervescent tablets hydrogen molecular water tablets then check out drinkhrw.com and use coupon code snipes 10 for 10% off trust me these are amazing when you get it you'll be continually getting more they do have some other other things on the website as well like they have this uh tablets which you put in the bath I think they call it relief bath tablets so you drop them in the water and submerge your body in the hydrogen water and apparently it's supposed to be incredible so um, I've heard some amazing things about it but I've not tried it myself they do have an anti-aging formula as well which is called ageless defense so the whole idea behind this one is to basically help to slow down the kind of aging process really you know any kind of oxidative stress you might be receiving this this has all great formulas in there to help slow that down um yeah what other things they've got they've they've got like another version of the uh, hydrogen tablets like they've got like a i think it's like a raspberry flavor Now, I have the normal one, um, but I give the raspberry one to my daughter because it's a bit more palatable for kids. And it's only hydrogen, so you don't need to worry about it as to, like, whether kids can take it. Uh, When I give it to her, she feels... I mean, she's normally energetic (laughs) anyway. But, um, like, during this time, during the uh, holidays, if she's going to a school club then I'll make sure she will drink one of those before she goes to school club and her energy levels and focus will be on point. So once again, if you want to grab one of these miracle tablets, these hydrogen water tablets, then visit drinkhrw.com and use coupon code SNIPES10 and get yourself 10% off. So today's guest goes by the name of Dr. Andrew Hill. So we had a conversation probably about, <clears throat> excuse me, about four weeks or maybe a bit longer. Yeah, actually probably about four weeks prior to our actual conversation. And it was kind of like an introduction, get to know each other first to discuss about what we're going to talk about in the podcast and wow just (laughs) just the general chit chat was a podcast in itself it was such a fascinating discussion I just thought what this is gonna be an amazing podcast and it so happened to be that this this guy it's it's amazing he's like he's like a proper genius but at the same time He's so <clears throat> he's so expressive, like the the choice of words which he uses, and not <laughs> it's his passion as well. Like you can hear in his passion that you know he's been doing this for a long time, and there's certain stigmas which um, floats around in the fitness or biohacking industry, which might uh, trigger him, which triggers myself to a certain degree. Um, But I very much love the way how he's very open with expressing his feelings about certain things. But he's he's very interesting. Now, he is a neuroscientist, entrepreneur, and uh, biohacking advocate. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA and is best known for his mission to bring brain hacking technology of neurofeedback in mainstream practice. To achieve this, Dr. Hill founded Peak Brain Institute in 2015, a community oriented company that teaches brain training from a fitness perspective and uses EEG neurofeedback and QEEG brain mapping designed to help all people achieve their brain performance goals. As I said, it was such an incredible conversation. I think you guys are gonna be blown away. Okay, let's bring on Dr. Andrew Hill. Hey Andrew, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, thanks for having me today.
0: Oh, thank you for being available. In fact, I'm very happy that, uh, I think it was one of your staff members that reached out to me and said that I feel as though Andrew would be great on your podcast. And um, when, I saw, when I received the message, I was like, okay, who is this company and who's Andrew? And I had a look and um, I was like, wow, neurofeedback, what is this? You know, I had a little read on neurofeedback, mm-hmm. um, but I'd like to hear how you would explain neurofeedback, like how it would benefit us. Just just what is the whole thing, really?
1: Sure. At a high level, neurofeedback is biofeedback on the brain, on the central nervous system, you know. Mm. Uh, breaking it down a little further, you can train, you can exercise and condition and change the sort of regulatory resources in the brain the same way you might train your body. Um, there's a couple of differences in training your brain and your body. The brain actually changes a lot faster than your body. So you can make massive performance changes in a few months, often if you apply the right kind of you know circuitry development. Uh, also, the brain changes if you're working on things that are always uh, in play, like attention, sleep, stress, speed of processing. Once you train those to a certain level, they stay. They stay there because you're using them there. Kind of like if you. You know, had really weak legs or something and you mm-hmm. went and developed really beautifully strong quads and everything else and then your habit was going for a hike every day your legs will stay strong your habit sitting on the couch drinking soda not so much you mm-hmm. know so the brain resources once you regulate them because they're kind of always being activated and used they tend to stay changed after a few months of, of neurofeedback which is the lovely thing is you can actually go ah my tension my stress sleep mood uh, can be re regulated, and then we can often dig in more specifically. So, you know, broad fitness perspective on regulatory stuff, but then you can go after things like OCD or PTSD or ADHD or seizures or migraines. And many of those things you can think about again in a body analogy, and it's part of the body, but it's kind of like you know, resources being a little bit cramped or pinched. Um, and many of the anxiety phenomena are not unusual phenomena in the brain their natural resource that kind of ramps up and then ramps back down appropriately usually um one example right. is the back middle of the brain is the posterior cingulate cortex Its job is to evaluate what's happening around you and get you to reorient your attention if you have to do something different like if you're uh, uh you hear heads up and you look up and catch the ball that's the posterior cingulate doing its job so you didn't get smacked in the face with the baseball right. or if you're looking at the floor of the car when you're driving that sense of uh, watch the road because you realize for three seconds you weren't looking at the road that's the posterior cingulate throwing a flag in the play saying you know you really should reorient your attention because you might not be totally safe at the moment we all have one we all use it it's lovely but some of us um, some of our brains learn the world isn't safe or predictable and it cramps up and it gets stuck in this evaluation mode and then we, we worry we're threat sensitive we ruminate and chew on things so If you look at someone's brain, a lot of the perspective of neurofeedback reframes things that used to be, you know, mental illness or suffering or stuff that your mind is doing into physiology. You're like, oh, your posterior cingulate's kind of hot. You remain a lot. Oh, you do? Kind of like looking at, you know, muscle tension. Oh, your lower erector muscles, your lower back are kind of spasmed. You have some lower back problems chronically. Oh, you do? Okay, these muscles are spasmed to protect you. Let's rebuild that lower back. Work on the range of motion, you know, make make those muscles not stuck in the static kind of spasm mode. The same way you can re-exercise, you know, rework the cingulate in the back to get it to not be stuck in this sort of threat-sensitive mode. In a matter of weeks, you can kind of pull the teeth of PTSD, for instance, doing that kind of reworking. Because that's one of the main circuits involved with classic, if you will, PTSD. Mm. And you can go after different resources and attention, stress, sleep. These are all things you can kind of break down, like you'd work with a personal trainer to design the, the performance resources or the physique or the look you want you can kind of do that for your brain in a lot of ways. That's the very high level.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, <laughs> you put it a lot more beautifully than what I read and understood it. It's, um, yeah, just all these things that goes on with the brain. It just, it leaves me, I don't know. Like, I'm so amazed. And I've been quite fascinated with the brain for years, probably because I felt myself. I have never been able to know how to fully tap into the right parts of the brain so that I can activate it. You know, there's certain days I wake up and I feel incredible and there's certain sure. days and I'm like, I'm not really feeling that good. And I'm trying to work out what has affected my, my, just my, my flow state and my sense of well and and that sort of thing. I find it quite fascinating.
1: Well, you've been taking control of your body, your brain, your performance in very elite ways for years. You've been, you've been developing resources into you know, very particular high performance ways. You're a high performer. But humans are good at adapting to performance. We're not great at hanging out at one particular configuration. We actually are, are shiftable, changeable creatures. So I'm sure you would agree you can get in like, you know, uh, performance shape, and then it's hard to maintain yourself at the absolute peak of, you know, whatever that is for you. In performance or, 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 or uh, clarity or speed or flexibility, mm. you know, physically and mentally. You wake up some days, you don't have the motivation or the drive, you have other days. Um, that's normal, typical. <laughs> but some of that is, is typical variability. Um, some of that is your brain getting stuck or getting, you know, regulated in a way like a cramped muscle that wasn't quite worked out or some old scar tissue in a joint or something that you need to, you know, address. And I think if you if you take the perspective on this being a little mechanical or physiological, it really does give you a sense of control and agency over a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I, I sort of think that we're now uh, in 2020 in the same rough time frame in the brain as we were in body fitness in the 50s. We were right. doing all this stuff in the 50s that worked. We didn't know why, but, like, the best diet for some of the best athletes was – super low carb and high fat. We didn't know why they were eating eggs and steak and that was it, to get incredible fighting shape. But it worked. And so we had all these things, these levers we were pulling in regulation that were effective, and we're kind of flying in some ways counter to what was understood at the time to be healthy. You know, like these guys doing crazy things, you know, raw eggs, what, what are you doing? People die from that, theoretically. So, so, but they were finding real effective levers to make change. And we don't understand the brain deeply, I would say enough thoroughly in any real way but we have hints and we get a little set sense of like which you know circuit or which resources function this way we're getting closer and closer to having an understanding of the brain is almost as thorough as the body there's some things we really don't get like how we you know produce the sense of awareness um we have mm-hmm. some sense of that of consciousness and things but not a very good sense or memory we don't really understand how memory is stored in the brain My it's right. kind of a mystery what about so we understand how stress response works on a handful of different ways of being stressed or attention.
0: Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was just uh, wondering, just, you know, it's said that we use about 10% of our brain. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, before we get in, I know you're gonna have a, a comment on that and that's where I want to yeah. get into. Now, I understand that, you know, that's been said over time. And what I want to know is, Is that true? Or is there a variability in terms of each individual? And um, how can we maximize our brain's potential to bring it, I don't know, maybe we already use 100%, but we use it, I don't know, in an ad hoc way. We don't really understand it properly. Um, Yeah, could you just give us a a breakdown into that? Sure. Huh? <laughs> Let me
1: unpack that a little bit. Um, you know, we don't want to use every resource at 100% of activation all the time. Just like you don't want to keep walking around like this all the day. You know, you want to have some, some range and some flexibility and turn things off and on. And most forms of human brain sort of health, aging, and performance require regulatory range. Just like insulin. You don't want insulin to go up and stay up or cortisol or even growth hormone. You, don't, you want the, these things have to oscillate. They have to cycle. Uh, So your body can go into different modes, and the same is true with the brain. You have to go into sleep mode. You have to go into awake modes to do things that are necessary. Now, in terms of activation, you're using a lot more probably than 10% of your cells at any one moment in time. It's it's not 10%. It's a lot more than that. Um, You've got several hundred billion cells in your brain, you know, 100 million, 100 billion rather, uh, uh, neurons, and probably twice that in glial cells at least. Wow. Um, vast amounts of information flow going on and all those cells can talk to each other effectively. I mean, they don't, they don't, but they can. So they can make new processes and like make new friends and make new circuits. And that means the information density of the brain is at least the number of neurons raised to the power of the number of neurons, you know, or the number of cells. So 300 billion raised to 300 billion. That estimate is actually larger than the number of atoms in the universe. Oh, the wow. Density that's potential is larger than there is stuff everywhere so it's an infinitely variable it's a holographics sort of information storage system you can you can you can save things as equations not as pictures and so stuff is very very efficient and you can use the same equation if you will determine an equation for storing multiple memories so it's very 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 packed down but also kind of echoes memories are distributed throughout the brain so back to activation when you're doing stuff with different circuits they come online and go offline but even when they're offline they're still doing stuff metabolic processes and if you had every cell in your brain fire at once, every neuron fire at once, or even a significant fraction, 30 40%, we call that a seizure. Right. And it kills you if it happens too often. Seriously, those grand epileptic, massive discharge seizures are frying the brain electricity. It's a, it's a lot of stuff happening. You know, one of the reasons that um, the brain doesn't feel uh, is because so much stuff is happening up there. The brain has no sensory nerve endings you can't feel your own brain which is odd because the brain's feeling everything it's perceiving everything but it can't feel itself because it's surges electricity and heat and chemicals and all kinds of things going back and forth imagine how uncomfortable that would be if you had like lactic acid surging back and forth in your (laughs) bicep all day long or something Ah, you know changing how distracting that would be so we don't feel the stuff up here and that's you know one of the things neurofeedback gets you is some closing the loops your brain understands what it's doing and can be gently pulled around into new modes so we don't use all of our brain but you do um activate certain things more chronically and or, or less often or with less stability like if i asked you to you know count rapidly back from 100 by 7 or something you could probably do it but if i asked uh, if I asked someone who's 100 years old to do it it would be a little harder because there's a speed of processing pinch that starts to creep in and a working memory pinch that creeps in with some aging processes um, So you know if you're really flexible in all of the resources you don't want to have them statically active I mentioned the cingulate in the back we have one in the front called the anterior cingulate Its job is to switch your focus essentially what's important to value or to attend to attend to, to, attend to. Um, the anterior cingulate will get extra active if we are like super in love. Oh, I love this person. I have a crush. Oh my gosh, this thing that's upset. You know, that's the anterior cingulate. It's also the what, what lights up or gets, gets kind of active when we have a song in our head,
0: mm.
1: or when we're you know biting our nails and can't stop, or we have full blown OCD. The cingulate's this big red blob of beta waves, very active waves. You want it to be able to shift into beta if you're focusing or directing your attention, and then let go if you aren't. So if I see a hot cingulate in the front for someone. They're probably either, they have some OCD or they're a CEO. I have no idea what it is.
0: Well, what's CEO? The head of a company. Oh, right. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, it was yeah, another yeah, point. I don't
1: know. I, I have to figure out how to tell that little joke better because the, <laughs> the context framing always catches people, but you know, it's, it's this is hyper-focus ability. I can't tell if it's working for you or not. I can tell it's unusual looking mm. at your brain, but if I look at your brain in the front and say, oh, your cingulate in the front's kind of hot. You know, beta waves are much more active than is typical. Often that means people perseverate. Do you stuck in your head? Oh, you do? Does it matter? Oh, it doesn't matter. You like it. Okay. Oh, it matters. Let's train that down. And then here's the thing. You don't lose the ability. It's kind of like brain resources that are stuck or extra active, especially ones for anxiety um, or trauma or kind of like superpowers that have become kryptonite because they're stuck. Right. You know, might starved because he couldn't eat the gold that the food turned into. Right. There's something about these extra powerful resources that don't work when they're all the way up to their maximal exertion. You wouldn't be functional if your quads were always fired. You wouldn't walk around very well, you know, you couldn't <laughs> relax your quad, couldn't on stairs especially, right? Wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, the same is true with like threat sensitivity and, and attention selection with these cingulates. And then you have other circuits for like scanning the environment in the back of the head. Most of us close our eyes and the visual system down a little bit goes into more alpha waves because it's expensive you open your eyes and it wakes back up into more beta that's what it's supposed to do so if you close your eyes it stays lit up in beta that's the brain remaining hypervigilant, preparing to scan but if you open your eyes and it doesn't s- switch into beta that's the brain being like huh what <laughs> A little inattentive you know
0: right right little
1: Keanu Reeves circa Bill and Ted so uh you want the modes the brain to to switch in and out of multiple modes often many modes a minute in fact or many modes a second depending on what's happening what circuit we're talking about and the regular regulatory flexibility of these circuits is actually much more important than where they hang out necessarily at any resting place but Mm -hmm. the resting places often give a hint about like oh that's cramped or that's pinched or this is slow like you can look at an elder who's 60, 70, 80 years old, and if their alpha waves are slower than average, you can predict speed of processing and word finding issues.
0: Sorry, can, so, I, um, can I just intervene sure. for a sec? You know, times when you really want to study something and your brain just is like, <coughs> do you know what, I've got other plans. And you're really trying to focus and it's maybe focusing on something else, or it yeah. decides it does not want to focus on anything. It just goes yeah. randomly on different subjects. Is that something to do with what you're mentioning there where you're trying to force it to do something but it's like, no, I want us it's to- It's kind of
1: the opposite. It's the related feature, but it's okay. kind of the opposite feature. What I was describing was using gas pedals, getting stuck in certain resources. What you're describing is having certain circuits with air in the brake lines. The hmm. inhibitory tone isn't quite as regular. So we have a circuit on the right-hand side of the brain that's involved with supervisory attention, helping you direct your focus. And know if you're paying attention. And it coordinates circuits on the front and back of both hemispheres. You know, awareness and prefrontal, and then visual direction and attention. There's this is a little guy that sits right here, kind of keeping it all going, so you know that you're doing the thing you want to do with your mind and your focus. This can fall asleep or be overburdened or be just set at a low activity level. And then you're more stimulus-driven uh, and less choice-driven. You know, you can mm. tell this area is low if you have a really hard time. With things that are boring but really easy, time with things that are intense.
0: Right, right. If you're the
1: guy on the sports field or the trading floor, but gosh, kill me now in a boardroom or classroom. This area, you know, is high in theta brainwaves, and you've you have a brain that's biased to be driven by this by the environment. Right. So whatever it is, you can adapt to. You're that guy, but you can't adapt to no information, which means those low classroom and boardroom kind of artificial modern worlds doesn't work for the hunter brain that is looking for dynamic change and novelty and is thriving on it. You know, if you're ADHD, you're stuck really far, often into that hunter kind of brain. Um, If you're AD, you're often stuck into the gatherer brain, very heads down, but you can't reorient. And most of us can switch back and forth between those modes. Some people get stuck, get cramped in one of those two modes. So if you came to me and said, look, I can't focus on stuff. It's really important to me. I have this big goal. I know I want to do it. There's no cognitive or emotional stuff in the way. It's all like, I'm sitting on the focus, I just, boom, it just can't do it. All right, let's look. We'll probably see a lot of theta brain waves with your eyes open. It's wow. a little harder to direct your attention. And so we'll just measure the moment to moment. Here's the, here's the uh, operational piece. This is neurofeedback. So to make the changes, we would take a couple of ear clips and stick them to your ear to measure uh, broadly the, the the head. And then off one particular spot, this little guy on the right that measures supervisory attention, or does supervisory attention, if you will. We measure right there how much beta and how much theta you're making moment to moment. You're making lots of different brain waves in every spot at all times. Mm. But as they fluctuate, the theta and beta, when beta goes up, this guy's coming on more, uh, more online. And when theta surges, he's kind of like chilling out and becoming less active. So moment to moment, we watch this with one single electrode. And whenever, for half a second, your brain happens to shift both waves, in the right direction, we go, yay, brain! And make something happen on a computer screen, like you're watching a puzzle picture fill in, or cars race, or a Pac Man eat some dots. And when your brain does more of the right thing for half a second, the game moves and makes some noise. And when your brain does the wrong thing for half a second, the game slows down or stops. So mm-hmm. the brain gets a little burst of applause for some things it's doing, and it starts to engage in trends that give it more rewards, more information. And oddly enough, neurofeedback is largely involuntary. You can't change your brain waves. You're kind of sitting there going, all right, why is this puzzle picture filling in every few seconds? I don't know, like mentally. But the brain's going, "Ooh, cool. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. And whenever it has more information, it goes, hey, wait a minute. That happens whenever theta drops. Oh, that's interesting. The brain, you know, (laughs) non-conscious sort of brain being personified here. And what happens is you get a little bit of an exercise, if you will, with dropping that theta briefly every so often. It gets sort of pointed at. With the information flow the next day your brain will do little bursts of dropping the theta to see what happens because Amazing. yesterday it produced information so tomorrow it'll happen a little bit more and you'll feel that you'll feel your focus coming a little more on or something and as you build that resource it's like progressively you know developing something new it gets more stable more strong you get more self-control if you will and directed attention less impulsivity mm. so you, if that's your goal you also measure those things you can measure impulsivity under boring conditions with very simple tests so we do a lot of assessments of executive function impulsivity attention and in like the case of adhd adult or child or uh, head injuries or something people come in with about you know on a bell curve for their age two to three standard deviations off the bell curve generally uh maybe more but they're in that kind of you know that, that, that the bottom third often of the bell curve which is not ideal for attention scoring and then after doing 40 or 50 sessions of exercising these regions they're often on the same side above the bell curve you know a couple of standard deviations high so you make often four standard deviations of performance change in 50 sessions of work on some of the classic attention difficulty and that's largely permanent so I mean this is a big big change in performance I work with athletes who get you know who can drop into the zone reliably once a performance athletes and artists often have very similar performance constraints it's often the ability to rest deeply drop stress voluntarily and then when they're in the flow or the zone to drop into the mode for performance they need to be in it's a lot of getting yourself out of mental states in some way and if you train those that creative flow state or access consciousness that you might get in a float tank or you know something else you can bring those states up voluntarily and give the artist or the athlete the ability to sort of drop into that almost primal flow state that lets you use all the resources without getting in your own way a little bit. So this is not just for fixing problems. It's also for kind of, oh I want to be more creative or I want to be a better listener for my partner or less irritable when I'm home at night. You know, a third of my clients are extremely yeah. high performers. Nothing wrong, but would like to optimize. And then a third of the people with extreme problems, you know, brain injuries and migraines and autism and trauma and everything else, seizures and my seizures and it's a big one. And then the last third are all of us who have a little stress, sleep, and attention difficulty. I kind of I kind of conceptualize that as like, you know, the bread and butter of most gyms. Most people walk in and go, I want to lose 15 pounds and get abs. And they're like, all right, <laughs> cool. You come to the right place, and then we'll look into some more stuff, probably. And that's what a third of my clients are like, all right, you want to optimize your sleep and get creative and fix your attention a little bit? Great. And they don't have any idea how much they're going to have a change in the next three to four months, and they often develop new performance goals and skills as they realize what agency they have, you know? Um, and you've seen that too, I'm sure, in the fitness world. Once people get who are not in it at all, in, in your coaching for instance, people that are like, I wanna get fit, I have no idea how. Mm-hmm. You get them two, three weeks in, over that hump, over that first pain, you know, and the, 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 the first like, the, the Dom's not showing up acutely the next day. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh my God, my body, wow, things are changing, I feel incredible. And this is motivation thing, this agency, this fire, that's lit that gives them the motivation to continue to make more change or to do whatever else they're doing. And that happens in the brain. Once you get a little hint of your brain fog, your trauma, your ADHD, your seizures, getting tractable to something you just did a few days ago, it really changes our perspective on the stuff we can't see. And I, that's yeah. my biggest you know, mission here is this is invisible. We often blame ourselves or others for having stress, sleep, attention, et cetera, problems. And, you know, there's some real things that we should take responsibility for. And there's some acute things we often need help managing. But a lot of the stuff that's sort of invisible and a bit stigmatized is just basic resources that you can go in and tweak and understand better. And so I, I challenge people, but also give them the, the sort of opportunity to, um, you know, take that agency because just like you may wanna, you know, live healthily or perform better, you know, physically you can do so mentally and it is accessible for most people. Um, at this point in modern tech, I mean, it, it's technology shrinking down, the costs have come down, and a lot of the high tech that we can use to help train the brain, um, which is nice in this sort of post-pandemic you know pandemic world where people are more isolated. A lot of this can happen uh, you know on your own, so to speak, because technology yeah. is uh, uh, developing a pace, so to speak.
0: <laughs> so. I think it's important to be able to, well, hack the brain, really. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are relying on I don't know, external stimulants to try and get the brain to function. You well, know, trying to yeah. Yeah, yeah, coffee. Yeah. You know, I have to hold my hand up. I got a nootropic in my mouth. Obviously, my teeth right. is all blue, but that, that's you know that's due to my my own. How can I put it? Um, my own. Um, it was self inflicted. I went to bed late, <laughs> so I'm feeling a little tired, and I'm I'm trying to force the brain to do more than it can. Yeah. Um,
1: which, by the way, we've always done. Since we've had brains, we've hacked them. Yeah. Seriously. Since probably before we were human, we've altered our brains. I mean, birds hang out in fermented berry juice to get, hot, to get drunk, and, and monkeys and things. Like, like you know, animals <laughs> seek altered states. All they right. really do. So okay. we were altering our brains since before we had human brains. And, you know, even since we had sort of modern human brains for like 5,000 to maybe 32,000 years, we've been doing all kinds of rituals around altered states religious rituals, ecstatic rituals, fasting, that's about controlling how we feel, meditation, mm. yoga. So I, I think biohacking is a term, right? Marketing is a bit new, mm-hmm. but it's not really new. I mean, and, and it's a natural human inclination to push at that edge of what we can do with all the stuff we're carrying around, right? So,
0: Let's talk about neuroplasticity. Well, like what, what would you say are the key tools? I don't know whether with what you were saying already about um, even people who have certain deficiencies and getting things back in line, uh, I don't know whether there's a certain way in um, connecting certain pathways, but what, what are the key tools to, to create neuroplasticity for people? Yeah.
1: So a couple of things. One is it's important to know that plasticity is always happening. And not only are you always making new brain cells every day, I mean, the average 65 year old makes about six or 700 new neurons every single day. It's, it's actually pretty active, Oh wow! Um, but all the cells that are existing can remap and remodel and change their relationships with each other dramatically. So plasticity is happening, shift happens, get yours. Like it's, it, it is happening. And so you have an opportunity to steer the change that is already occurring. You're never going to use all those cells, those those 700 or so cells in young, old, if you will, people. Um, Even in you and I, a little younger than that, uh, half the cells that are born, if you will, pluripotent stem cells that aren't quite brain cells yet but become so, they kind of travel throughout the brain and turn into the cell they want to be, half of those cells die because they aren't being used. They don't make networks, they don't make uh, uh, friendships with other cells and get trophic growth factors. So one thing, you have untapped plasticity, all of us, about half of our plasticity is not being used in terms of longer term, big change plasticity. That's about skill building and learning and cognitive development. That is the opportunity. It's like a five week journey for those cells to turn into the kind of cells they wanna be. So you have these kind of, you have these five week periods where you can make really big change in your cognitive emotional states in these sprints for five or six weeks. So that's my first tip is, you've got this kind of new cell growth thing happening Why don't you hang out with the next 700 cells and everything comes after for six weeks and try some focused, whatever it is, some hack for about that length of time, because that's about what it takes to make a massive change. So that in terms of time perspective, that's useful, but, you know, go into a piano lesson for one day, if you didn't play piano already, the the hand motion for one lesson will remap every single cell in the hand area in the brain the same day, every single cell will move around the same day. So, the brain changes very rapidly. You have momentary plasticity you can also tap into. And then things like yoga, meditation, neurofeedback, microdosing, um, fasting will all jack up plasticity pretty strongly. Exercise, novelty, um, a lot of plasticity is coming from the hippocampi, the seahorse shaped structures in the sides of the brain that move memory out into the brain to distribute it and store it long term. And a lot of mood and Clarity and drive and interest and understanding and intelligence are driven by how flexible, how plastic the hippocampus is, hippocampi on both sides are. And it turns out anything that lifts depression does so by boosting BDNF, brain derived uh, neurotrophic factor in the hippocampus. Nothing else that, that, that work, basically that's the final place where depression is lifted, is in the hippocampus getting more active. And the hippocampus does lots of things like environment remembering and exploring as a direct circuit. It does memory formation, but it's it's, it's specific job is to explore the environment and take cues. So if you drop yourself into an environment you've seen before, it goes, Oh yeah. And it understands the environment. Mm -hmm. So exploring environments, novel environments causes a big boost of plasticity. So exercise is great for plasticity because your, because your brain's reorganizing for signals, the body's changing. But exercise out in a novel environment will double it or triple it because now the brain has to encode the new environment as well, the exploration piece of it. And so anything new will always double your plasticity versus use just exercise, mental or physical exercise. If you've got a novelty piece, it jacks up the plasticity dramatically.
0: That's quite fascinating. That's really interesting. Um, have you heard of a company called Wavi?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So uh, they're a company. Um, they have this device which goes in their head and I believe it takes like a, a panoramic assessment of the brain. Yeah, it's
1: EEG. Absolutely. It's, a, it's, a, it's an EEG, a measurement of electricity. Um, they have a particular a four minute assessment and a particular sort of walled garden uh, software. So they're about developing an ecosystem of assessments for practitioners to do quick assessments on. Um, their clients, like chiropractors, doctors, et cetera. And a lot of their assessments are focused on the ERP. There's an, a, an evoked thing in the brain called the P300, a little wave that happens 300 milliseconds after you see something interesting which you want to notice. It's an attention thing. And so you can look at the P300 in terms of how big it is and how far back in the brain it goes as a function of performance. And that's a lot of what they're looking at, a database of norms across ages. And then you can quickly throw a cap on your client and say, oh, what's their P300 doing? Compared to the average person, that spits out some attention metrics. It's nice, but it's a very mm-hmm. limited use of what I call quantitative EEG. It's one particular set of um, metrics they've centralized on as a commercial product.
0: Right. But
1: it's expensive. It's seven thousand dollars per sized cap. You know, so it, it's really a clinical tool, not an end user tool, and it's also only giving you one or two basic EEG measures. And I think that. You know, you wouldn't want to just, just get a cholesterol measurement. You might want to get a DEXA scan or a strength measurement. Like, you know, you have to look at this stuff from lots of ways. So I use a cap. Actually, I'll show you one. Here's a, here's a cap. This is a QEG cap. So you can take these things and put them on your head and squirt it full of gel and get the same locations you would have. These are the same locations the Wabi uses. It's a standard set of sleep, actually, sleep study from the 30s. I mm-hmm. uh, developed these sort of standard uh, uh, grid of locations. You can measure those with a standard device. And then what I do is take that information and compare it to a database of several thousand people, and generate several thousand comparisons. Here's how fast your brainwaves are. Here's the distribution across the head. Here is uh, their connectivity patterns and in the amounts of them across all kinds of metrics. And then you end up with you know, a lot of data that basically plugs you against a bell curve of your age, mm-hmm. and you see all these different things that are unusual. And you then go through them and say, oh, this thing for some people. Like if I saw alpha, I don't see this for you, I can tell you're very, very quick, but if I saw that your alpha waves were running slower than your age by a standard deviation or more, I'd go, oh, are you having word finding issues? A little speed of processing? Oh, you are? All right, let's you know add that to the list. And, or the cingulates were hot. If we saw that they were really a lot of beta, two, three standard deviations out, oh, well, that might be something to talk about. So again, we don't find things that are problematic, we find things that are unusual. Generate ideas about what they could mean because Stuff that's weird for some people is not a problem for other people. Stuff that's a problem for one person is a benefit for someone else, like this OCD and CEO kind of overlap in the front midline, it can be a superpower <laughs> or a kryptonite. Mm. Um, so you have to kind of go through a bunch of data and then I work with clients to paint them the picture of what all is, is being explained by the data. And I also do executive function testing, I bore you to tears for 20 minutes and measure your attention. And those two things together give us a nice framing, the physiology and the performance on the brain. It's very, very broad. And it's very, very sort of stable across time unless you're doing stuff to your brain. Like fatigue will throw off the P300 um, or an injury like, like that in, 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 in the lobby, for instance. But brain, but full brain mapping, you might see one feature thrown off, but everything else will stay stable so you can make predictions about what's happening. You know, so there's, there's a, it's kind of like learning to become your own functional medicine doc, if you will, when doing brain mapping. You don't necessarily know what the range of every little hormone is, but if you dig enough or work with your functional medicine provider, they can say, oh, that's one you should probably worry about, or maybe not. Or here's one that might get in the way for some people. You know, If someone looks at their, their testosterone's a little low, the cortisol's either super high or super low, a functional medicine doc knows that you're probably in pregnenolone steel you know, kind of phenomena where you're shunting pregnenolone instead of into tea, into cortisol because you're so stressed, burning it all up and it's sinking your tea over time. Mm. Well, that's a pretty sophisticated thing to see off of, eh, slightly empty tea, and <laughs> cortisol being either very, very low or very, very high. You have to know how the fun- how the circuit works, so to speak, to yeah. go, hmm, sir, are you experiencing this? Oh yeah, I am. All right, it's not some pregnenolone if so we can't shunt back into tea. Production. Sorry,
0: is, is that through looking on brain mapping?
1: Well, this example is, I'm saying is metabolic, people understand that, you know, in this biohacking space, they understand hormones. I I flip back to an example, but yeah, yeah. in brain mapping, you can see stress, sleep, attention, mood, speed of processing, uh, sometimes injuries, uh, a lot of brain fog signatures, trauma, you know, those sorts of things is what the gross 10,000 foot view. Like you can't tell how you're feeling from a blood test. You can't tell how you're feeling from a brain map, but you might tell that you tend to feel stressed. From a cingulate that's hot you can might tell you tend to feel stress from high cortisol in your bloodstream you know may not be true across people but it gets your doc to go hey wait a minute is this interesting so it's just kind of giving the metaphor in the body terms but no i i don't look at that particular stuff myself but we do give you a lot of the same perspective on stress and attention and sleep um, that you actually end up sometimes getting first from your from your body doc uh, before your brain doc because they look at mm-hmm you know, stress features. They look at fatigue and things like that and inflammatory markers and C-reactive protein. Inflammation is a function sometimes of wear and tear in the brain, or it's a long chronic process of everything getting inflamed and beaten up by living in the world. And you can kind of look at the brain. If, If you have a lot of inflammation in your body, your brain will have issues. I can see it. You'll have a sluggish brain foggy, you know, kind of state cognitively, and I'll see it in the numbers you know Mm. really obvious oh my
0: god i need to see mine (laughs) do you know what because my training is okay but i don't know man my brain sometimes i'm like what is going on yeah you know even if sleep has been good yeah sorry i'm 41.
1: okay so not even close to any age related stuff you got a good solid like 15 more years before you should even think about it Uh, hopefully (laughs) late, late 50s is when the first age things show up if you're unlucky Right. You're a, you know, a beast of a man physically, so I'm sure you're taking really good care of yourself in terms of fat and carbs. Because most of what drives aging is high carb, is sugar. And right. you obviously aren't somebody who like, you know, is, has a big sugar habit, right? So yeah. that lifestyle of keeping sugar low, lifelong, will keep your brain from aging rapidly for most of the big things that cause problems. So the only stuff you have to worry about as a, as a guy that's prime, is keeping your slow-wave sleep intact.
0: Because slow that's the wave. one
1: metric, slow-wave sleep or deep sleep, yeah. delta sleep, dreamless sleep. That's mm. the one thing you can actually measure. You can't measure REM, by the way. Everyone gets concerned about their REM measurements on these little devices. The REM's <laughs> not really, don't worry about it. If you don't have REM, you're crazy in a few days. You'll know if you don't have REM. <laughs> but, if you don't, but deep sleep, actually, you can short yourself on. You know, it's, it's amenable to, to, to like pushing on. So total sleep, watch the hours, and then deep sleep. You want to have a good hour and a half. If you're an adult mm. of deep sleep every day, mm. you know. I started a new kettlebell workout la- I, I didn't work out twice a day now. It was stronger in the morning. I'm doing kettlebells now in the afternoon and kicked my butt last night, and I never get huge amounts of deep sleep. My deep sleep jumped from like an hour and a half to over two hours last night because I beat my body up before going to bed. <laughs> I was like, good, good job, body for waking bed. up. Ah. What's that?
0: Was that just before bed?
1: No, it was two hours. I I stopped working out about two hours before bed. Yeah, Um, right. right. I only did like a 25-minute, you know, kettlebell workout. But I was like, you know, immediate muscle soreness, like Mm. hit right away. And my (laughs) second workout of the day, I was a fasting day actually. I haven't eaten about in, in a little over 40 hours now. Um, so like I'm all pushing, 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 and my body was like, Good job. And it did exactly what I wanted it to do. But by looking at my deep sleep numbers, I'm now encouraged. Oh, wait a minute. That not eating and pushing super hard thing worked really well. I feel great today. You know, I mm. got a lot I probably you know, I just did a little ketone breath measurement and it was uh, the aces are surging. So I know that I'm pumping out tons of fuel to build me muscle. Right. It's great.
0: You know, what's that you have, done?
1: Sorry. What uh, is that? Let me find my little device here.
0: Yeah, I'd love to uh,
1: so, check um, it out. Uh, <clears throat> this is a biosense device. My buddies in, uh, in uh, St. Louis. A BioCite, Biosense device, and it, it 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 warms up, and then you exhale, and it grabs the last bit of your exhale to get the deep lung air, and it measures breath acetone as a proxy for ketones. Wow! And if you grab the last bit of lung air, it's pretty highly correlated, and this is a pretty good device called Biosense. Real nice guys, and I and I like the device. It's they're still kind of getting it better and better. There's some things I don't like, like you can't measure twice in a row. So if you can stop oh, breathing smoothly, you got to reset it and do it again, which is annoying. Right. But, you know, you can watch your ketones, essentially, by watching your, your your acetone, your breath acetone. And everyone thinks that they're producing ketones way sooner than they are, in my experience. Like, I, I'm pretty good at fasting. I fast, you know, every other day a lot of the time for the past few years. And mm. I do not produce any significant amounts of ketones via acetone measurement mm. for, like, 24 hours of fasting. It just isn't starting, really, you know? If I was pure keto or carnivore, it'd probably be a little faster. But I know because I look it up. You can see my, my aces are nine right there. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that my deep sleep surged last night. So I, you know, I know I feel pretty good, but I but I, I can feel pretty good and kind of not know day to day what that absolutely means. Or I can look up my deep sleep, my total sleep, my aces, you know, and kind of track this stuff. So this is the agency I think we all have the opportunity to, to take, you know. Yeah.
0: I think it's good uh, that there's tools that you can use to, you know, check these things and be accountable. Sometimes I do find that I'll wake up and I'll question how I'm, how I'm feeling. How was my sleep? Let me check. Rather than asking myself, how are you feeling? <laughs> Checking both right <laughs> don't
1: be enslaved to your aura or your wound because oh, sometimes they're wrong you know yeah How, like every so often they fail to measure properly or their algorithms and fit your, your own personal brain or body and they're just not right people come mm-hmm. in and say my aura ring says i got no i got no rems the past week i'm like are you psychotic no <laughs> don't believe it you know or or yeah. like oh wow all, out of nowhere i suddenly got zero hours of sleep i think i was asleep guess what you were you know, you probably had like the ring pushed up against, you know, your bed or something or the whoop strap mm-hmm. was flipped over or who knows, you know, these things are devices. Don't, the map is not the territory. Don't believe the data if it's not sane, you know, like I, um, my, my whoop strap has this odd, uh, uh, quirk of if I wash my dishes, it thinks my heart rate goes to like 250. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't. you know, 15 minutes of washing dishes. <laughs> wow. What? what the heck? <laughs> no, it didn't happen. I didn't feel anything. I, I checked the heart rate. No, nothing didn't happen, you know. But, like, you have to be sane with this stuff because all the devices, while accessible, are a little imperfect. And the mm-hmm. devices that do more things will generally build in lots of features, but some of them are imperfect, which is kind of cool. Like, there's one device I love, which is the BioStrap. It can do almost every single thing of all the devices. It does really complex sleep studies, looking at motion as well as heart. You can do an spo2 with it. It's really good. But if I want to do dedicated work, I pick up another device because all the devices that add all of the stuff will do them a little imperfectly. Even the Whoop and the Aura do some things imperfectly like REM It's just not a very valid measure. Mm. So you have to kind of evaluate your tools. Like right now in in COVID, I'm using this thing for a uh, um, spo2. So this is a sleep tracker for spo2 i put on my hand oh. and in 10 seconds it warms up and does a real-time heart rate and spo2 tracking and in the app i set alarms so if my spo2 drops below 95 percent or something it, it it buzzes and wakes you up oh right yeah maybe the apnea or something and you've got some concerns you know it's better to have you know be fully woken up and go back to sleep than be you know be be, be starving for air all night long well yeah. Yeah, get one of these things it's called a uh an O2 ring from Wellu. I really like it. But I, got, mm. I was worried about, you know, asymptomatic COVID. And you can you can watch your, your, your tools. If your respiratory rate surges on the whoop or the aura, that's weird. You should watch that. Because what will happen with asymptomatic respiratory issues or, or, or uh, oxygenation issues is respiratory rate will, will, will climb to make up for it for a few days before you have any symptoms often. So you can watch respiratory rates on these devices. You can look at the aura for body temperature. You know and body temperature if you start to track it for the first time can scare you people often don't realize it fluctuates by a full degree every 24 hours maybe more and not 24 hours against the earth's clock necessarily Mm -hmm. so if you track your aura body temperature you'll be like what the heck it's going up and down by a degree every few weeks well yeah actually you're just catching your diurnal variation against the sampling rate that's why it looks like it's shifting in time but you know, it's a couple degrees you should worry about, not one degree in
0: terms of yeah. changes.
1: But if you watch this stuff, then you know. Then you know what you should worry about or take control of. So that's my real, you know, it's an agency, you know, championing <laughs> message here. Whatever it is, you should know.
0: Yeah. So. You you mentioned uh, briefly about the, the heart rate variability, and I was thinking to myself, what the, the, is there like a s If your heart rate variability... Is of in in a certain range, um, would that show that there's some issue with the brain or the or vice versa?
1: HRV um, does affect the brain, and the brain does affect the HRV. It, it, it is a closed, in some ways, system, and you can train the system. You can train the heart rate variability by training the brain directly, or you can train the brain by training the vagus nerve input to the heart rate variability through through breath pacing, basically. Mm. Um, but HRV is an absolute number, is not that meaningful, person to the next, because it's a compound number that's made up of several different things the body and the brain is doing. There's, a, there's reflexes involved with keeping the heart rate steady, against uh, position, or against inhalation. As you breathe in, there's a, there's a reflex that actually surges the heart rate slightly. You breathe out, it goes down a little bit. But also, when you do positional things, it changes, and then stress-based things will change it. So all these things are fighting each other and summing as HRV but the absolute number of HRV for one person can be dramatically different one person to the next it has no meaning it's like body fat on a crappy scale you can't believe the raw number it's just hard to understand but if you change by x amount oh okay that, that's that's good so don't be too concerned if your HRV on your devices especially these devices which aren't perfect for HRV um if the device now oh, is wow it's 30 or 20 or 15 well if it's always that, that nah, not a big deal, but if it doubles one day, if it halves one day, that's a problem or that's a good thing. That's what you should be. You should care about because I have a, um, a technician, a coach in one of our offices who has an HRV rate that is in the hundreds, the highest the guys have ever seen, you know, higher than uh, than some of the swimmers who use it. Mm-hmm. Swimmers have some of the best HRV in the community. Um, and she's an athlete, but she's not like, you know, uh, Olympian yet. She's just a good athlete, young, healthy, etc. cetera. And she's HRV in the hundreds. Mine hangs out in the tens. It's like 35, 25. But if I work out really hard and rest really well, it goes up to like 65 the next day.
0: Mm.
1: You know, that's as good as my technician having hers go up from like 250 to 300 or something. It's not, you know, it's not better or worse. It's, a, it's an improvement. And, we, and you have to be graded per person the baseline it almost per person so i would say take your average hrv and subtract it out from the hrv measurements you're getting and then use that as your floor and watch for mm-hmm. changes and you don't want to have it decreasing over time that's a sign of heart disease increased stress cortisol that'll that'll lock you into a rigid pattern if it's decreasing over time you should address that right. if it's increasing over time you're doing a good job and otherwise mm-hmm. look at how stressors that are good for you like exercise fasting will actually decrease it briefly and then after you recover you should have higher levels so you want to look at the circuit do what the circuit should be doing and make sure that you're pushing it around yeah it's doing it should be doing don't worry too much about well my my husband or my wife's hrv is three times mine and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean much
0: okay so. all right it's it's one of those where I'm always thinking the number should be really high all the time. And if it ain't, okay, what's, what's brought it down? What's going on? You know, but that's cool to know. So if we just move on from that, um, talk to me about like dementia, what's going on with the brain, like people who have dementia or, uh, you know, Alzheimer's and and that sort of thing. Sure.
1: So dementia is, uh, specifically dementia is a symptom of several different diseases and dementia is a, a, a symptom of memory. Um, Memory, as uh, referred to in dementia, is usually about long-term recall, um, uh, episodic memory, first-person memory, not semantic, not knowledge for information and facts. So even with Alzheimer's, people will still actually know who the president was when they were 20 years old. You know, they don't lose facts or the meaning of words. You don't lose that, actually continues to climb until you're very, very, very aggressively symptomatic. So the hippocampus in the temporal lobes moves memory out into long-term. And the parahippocampus right outside the hippocampus is also involved with some of that. And those two structures also retrieve memory. So episodic first-person memory is hippocampal. Semantic non-episodic you know, meaning is just outside that. So in the case of like Alzheimer's, you have a hippocampal, a medial temporal lobe atrophy, and the cells are being stripped out. And you lose first the center of it, the hippocampus so you lose a sense of who you are, who your family is, but you don't lose a sense of the world because you still have all the semantic information just outside of that, unless the brain is very, very far gone. Um, in fact, elders in general develop across you know, elders, uh, healthy and otherwise, develop improved semantic memory lifelong. Every elder is better than you and I are theoretically <laughs> right. at knowing more things. Mm. You know, Even ones that have significant access with remembering who they are, still know more things than you or I do because of accumulated information. So um, there's several different types of dementia, uh, or or it can come in several different syndromes. Um, Frontotemporal dementia is vascular damage up in here, frontotemporal junction. Uh, You get a lot of emotional stuff there, memory things as well. Um, Alzheimer's, other Alzheimer's-like dementias are really driven by oxidation of tissue, uh, burning out the tissue. Um, That's medial temporal lobe. There's some evidence that the brain has remodeling ability for synaptic density and neurons, the same way that the bone tissue has remodeling ability for osteoclast, osteoblast balance. You stress the bone, it builds more bone. But if you have take statins, you strip yourself of bone tissue, you know, so it's really, you know, you can do bad things. Well hmm. sugar um cause or high amounts of oxidation in the brain and other stressors because of hormones that are super high like CRP, a um, bunch of factors, 37, 38 factors in the body Will make the brain flip. It, it, amyloid, which is a signaling molecule in, involved in the innate immune system, cleaning up microbes in the, in the environment from killing you. Amyloid is made by another protein, if you will, called amyloid precursor protein, APP. APP cleaves its length a couple different places depending on what it needs to do. And there's about 60 different places, but there's two main ways it'll cleave. And one of those, APP cleaves into amyloid beta, which you've heard about. And amyloid beta, when it accumulates, signals the brain to start stripping out synapses. Oh, wow. It goes into a synaptoclastic, it consumes synaptic density. And when you have low amyloid beta, you're in a synaptic, synaptoblastic mode, it's an osteoclast and osteoblast, you know, building up more brain tissue. So in an environmentally dangerous, you know, microbially dangerous environment like Papua New Guinea, let's say, or there's just some jungle somewhere, if you have high amyloid, you live longer and have clarity in your brain. So people in Papua New Guinea generally have amyloid-rich brains and have high APOE-4 status, which causes oxidation of tissue and Alzheimer's, because lipid uh, transporters, APOE-4, APOE is a lipid transporter in the brain and the body. You have several variants, 2, 3, and 4, we have two copies. If you're APOE-4-4, two copies of 4, you oxidize fats rapidly in your brain and uh, elsewhere. You author, Atherosclerosis and Alzheimer's and dementia, things are often rapid through fat oxidation. If you're APOE uh, 2-2, very little brain oxidation, but you can have heart problems because of other forms of lipid metabolism. If you're APOE 2-3, it's the best of all protective circumstances. In Papua New Guinea, most of them are APOE 4-4. In the U.S., wow. those of us that are 4-4, die of Alzheimer's really, really rapidly and have diabetes and have atherosclerosis. But in Papua New Guinea, they live the longest
0: because
1: <laughs> the environment's microbially dirty and, they're, and, and at least historically, maybe not today, but historically the main food was starchy tubers, high starch food. So they had lots of starch and didn't die of Alzheimer's or atherosclerosis. They lived long and prospered because the amyloid was cleaning up all the, all the, the stressors in the environment. But in a modern world, Western world, reading sugar, pure starch at high levels without the microbes to fight, and the brain gets eroded, flips into a weird immune mode that doesn't need to be in. I think that's what's happening. We, we sort of mm. call Alzheimer's type three diabetes these days because of that. I hear that, I hear but that. But it's more complicated than that. It's not just Alzheimer's. Parkinsonian things are accelerated by the glycation of tissues, you know, oxidation of sugar, just like Alzheimer's is. Um, Louis body dementia, one of the Parkinsonian Uh, cluster of things, uh, the Lewy bodies, little clusters of of altered tissue in the brain, the edges are glycated and and ripped through the brain rapidly when that happens. So controlling blood sugar in the brain is is probably the number one thing you can do to not accelerate all this stuff. I work with people in their 40s and 50s all the time who are concerned about their memory because they can't find words in the afternoon. And basically, unless your parents and grandparents died of Alzheimer's in their 50s, i.e. genetic variants of Alzheimer's, then you have a metabolic thing going on and and if you're healthy then you don't develop metabolic dementias you know like that it takes a long time mm. if things happen like that they're stroke driven not dementia driven which can produce cognitive issues so but again that's what vascular tone you know so
0: quickly i have had a, a genetic test and it was shown that i do have the apoe4 gene four. Um, four. Two no no one, one copy one copy you know
1: if it's three four or two, four,
0: <laughs> <laughs> three, four yeah. or two four just yeah, eight, have
1: a, you have two copies of two three or four apoe so you can have a APOE 4 APOE 4 APOE 4 APOE 3 you have two copies so
0: I, I think it was just a single copy as far as i'm aware
1: well you well you have 2 APOE apo4 APOE genes you'll, you'll have two of them right you can have two copies of four or you can have two copies of two or whatever a mix Two copies of four is the riskiest status for your brain flipping over into this amyloid-rich, stripping tissue out mode. It also is the risky status for developing heart disease for atherosclerosis because your fats oxidize very quickly. Right. It's like having a lot of you know, a lot of LDL tendencies, perhaps, you know, or a lot of triglycerides. It's kind of a problem in some ways. Not for you, you're keeping your carbs low, your you're, 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 you're raw sugar in your brain and body low. So you won't actually feed into the APOE four issue,
0: probably. Mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm so okay okay so i mean th- there are days when i will have like as i i'll call them sin food you know like some sweet treats every once in a while um would it 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 would probably be a bit more riskier for me then for, to have these moments of sweet binges i'd assume
1: i don't think it's risky for you to have moments of sweet binges i think it's really risky to have a lifestyle that not careful right i mean you know these are um, insulin and sugar and cortisol and all the stuff we think about these are not one-offs these are re- these are signals and the ba- brain and body adapt to them over time if insulin goes up it stays up that's an issue then cells get insulin resistant but if it goes up every so often it's actually kind of metabolically you know it's a good thing perhaps I, i'm a big fan of knowing the rules with this stuff this metabolic stuff and mm-hmm. then violating them with a with wild abandon about 20 percent of the time just to like keep myself flexible. I don't want to fall into a coma walking by a donut shop. You know, I want to like have a donut every so often. But you know, if you keep pumping your sugar up, I mean, in the case of of, car- of, of starchy carbs and sugars, the body develops a two week burst of oxidizable fats. HDL goes up from carbs for two weeks. Sorry, LDL and, v- and VDL, VLDL, which is the bad one. Goes up mm-hmm. for two weeks when you eat starchy carbs. If you eat bacon, uh, VDL goes up for, sorry, HDL goes up for um, a day or two, uh, 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 LDL for about two days. So, so, you know, binging on fatty food is a very short, you know, problem. It doesn't burn you for two weeks. Binging right. on carbs does. Wow. So you, ha- so you have to kind of like, you know, it's a manage this. I, I do a lot of fasting, so I eat carbs still. Okay. If I was not doing fasting every few days, I probably wouldn't have carbs every day because it's yeah. just too much. My system needs to clear it, you know? Mm. So, like, I mean, look at my Instagram, it's full of baked bread and lots of lovely high carby food. And uh-huh. I can only get away with that because I have periods of no carbs and no calories, and I let things clean themselves out. So, it'd be very risky for you with APA4 to be that guy that sits on the couch playing video games, drinking Mountain Dew, sedentary, so increase heart <laughs> risk, you know, increase sugar all the time. You will fall apart faster mentally and physically, perhaps, because of APOE4, your, your cardiovascular system, your brain will erode faster than somebody who didn't have APOE4 status in their lipid transports. Like me, I have, I have two, three. I have the best version for anti-Alzheimer's and anti-Atherosclerosis, which is great because people hmm. in my family have died from Alzheimer's. I'm like, oh, really right. severely. And diabetes. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, oh, I don't have that one?
0: <laughs> okay. Wow. And I'm a
1: gerontologist. I thought I have the versions that make you protected against atherosclerosis and diabetes. I'm like, holy cow, how'd that happen? You know, good job. Some, some cousin or aunt somewhere. Um, but knowing this helps you make choices. Just like knowing that I got two hours sleep last night after hitting the kettlebells hard. You better believe I'm going to hit him hard tonight
0: mm-hmm. again. Of Instead of
1: going, ooh, I was kind of sore today. I, no, no, no. It did good things to my body because I can see it.
0: We're just going to take a short break. And return right back. It is said that your gut is your second brain. Since we need to eat to live, we pretty much are making most of our decisions based on what our gut tells us. That's one of the reasons why it's important to think about what we digest. Cognibiotics is a combination of cognitive enhancement with pre and probiotics. It contains all of the strains you need to positively transform your brain and boost bdnf generate serotonin enhance cognitive performance rejuvenate your brain and improve gut brain connection if you'd like to take your cognition to the next level then check out bioptimizers.com and use coupon code SNIPES10 for 10% off. That website link again is buyoptimizers.com and coupon code SNIPES10 for 10% off.
1: I kind of feel it, but I have a number I can look at tomorrow morning and see if it did it again Mm. and help guide my behavior. So that's, I think, the critical piece. No matter what we're talking about is you actually have control over a lot of the things in your brain and body. And we're at a place of biohacking, modern medicine. I mean, we have all kinds of tools to take control. Things that are exogenous inputs like the trochees, things like doing neurofeedback with an EEG trainer, you know, um, meditation, ancient and modern techniques to biohack, nootropics, fasting. I mean, we know so much more. Functional medicine screens on methylation status to dial in your B vitamins. We know so much more now than we ever have. It's still a bit of a black art and a mystery, but mm. you can dig in. And for yourself, you can find places to make change that is effective.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's really good. The fact we have the power in our own hands. What's your thoughts um, on circadian rhythm and the brain? Does it affect the way the brain works? Oh, and massively. Yeah?
1: Massively. Yeah, and I think circadian rhythms underpin a lot of our human performance. Stress, sleep, attention, mood can actually be really thrown off. Learning. Uh, by, by immune, by uh, circadian dysregulation. Um, I studied circadian systems in undergrad actually, and then flipped over to EEG in grad school. But um, there's, in humans, the circadian rhythm is easily pushed because we're kind of not diurnal nor nocturnal, we're kind of you know omnivores, so we kind of do both. But there are a few levers built in for circadian regulation. Our circadian rhythm, especially men, are longer than the Earth's 24-hour cycle. Uh, women are often a little longer a little shorter men are often you know a good hour longer so we have to reset our circadian rhythm back to the earth's photo period every day in theory or at least know where it is over time to reset to that same rough place and people in biohacking circles are very concerned about light and screens and i'm sorry i'm a a heretic here i don't care about light all that much
0: oh really yeah i think wearing blue glasses at
1: night's a bad thing i think (laughs) The brain is not meant to have a narrow frequency of light like that. You know, yellow only coming into your brain after dusk. I think it's a bad thing. I mean, personally, I, I was suspicious when every time I put on a pair of blue blockers, I get a migraine instantly. Um, but then I started asking other people who are vision scientists, they're like, one frequency of light is generally not a good thing for the brain. It's some weird things. So I'm not a fan. Also, people do it for circadian reasons in theory, but light is... Pretty far down the list of things that hack your circadian rhythm. The number one lever that you have control over is not light, it's food. And the next is activity. And then you get to light. So light's pretty far down. If you're not sorting out the first two, forget light. It's just not, it doesn't matter. You're not going to fix stuff. So eating before bed will spike insulin and suppress growth hormones. You don't get into deep sleep and you'll circadian re-regulate. That's the number one thing you have to do. Fast Mm -hmm. before bed. Let in the sun drop all the way. You get into deep sleep. 90 minutes later, huge surge of growth hormone. One giant pulse. And men and women who are north of about 35 or 40, that's the only growth hormone you're getting, essentially. <laughs> so if you eat before bed and go to sleep, no growth hormone for you. <laughs> and no deep sleep. You skim yeah. the surf. So the rule of thumb, go to bed hungry, wake up refreshed and full of energy. Go to bed right. full, wake up hungry and tired.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so would that, would it be anything you eat before bed would cause an issue with growth hormone, any Any calories, calories. right? So there's no, any insulin.
1: And some of us that are dysregulated tasting sweet, non-carby things causes an insulin response, you know? So you, the, the, what I tell people is you got to fast calories are okay. Sorry. Calories are not okay, but flavor is so herbal tea. If you or your kid needs a ritual or a flavor, make herbal tea. You know, there's no calories. Um, You you do something, you taste something, you know, you hydrate. It's great.
0: Mm -hmm. But
1: if you're like, you know, clawing the walls three hours after your dinner, you're hungry, well, that's a sign you should keep doing this. But you should probably also have a richer, fattier dinner. So you have a long, slow decline of energy and not a blood sugar drop. And then you'll actually clear your energy without provoking a feeding response because the brain wants to feed before bed before you fast for eight or 12 hours because we didn't get up and eat right away we got yeah. up and went and hunted the chickens in the forest and then we ate <laughs> so the first rule is fast before bed the second rule is consistent wake time within an hour of dawn an hour of sunrise because that's mm. the light cue where brains are used to seeing that's the only strong light cue for circadian stuff is the color of light within one hour after dawn if you don't see it light doesn't matter
0: I think and the th- third
1: rule is activity before you eat.
0: Activity before you eat, or like some sort of movement, physical.
1: Something. Some some mm. days. Some days, go hunt chickens in the forest before you, you know, <laughs> eat your cave But like you know, do some sun salutations three times a week when you get up or something before yeah. you put in your mouth. Something. Sweat a tiny bit. Mm. It's a very strong signal, mm. it's stronger than anything to do with light,
0: mm. Mm.
1: except for that morning light, that, spe- that special blue light that's there. Within one hour, but the sun gets higher in the sky, the angle of incidence gets more acute, and that blue light gets reflected back out mostly into space. We don't see it after one hour uh, post dawn. So you got to get it. You got to see that light. Some days of the week, uh, an hour or dawn or after, in places where it doesn't happen reliably, like Scandinavia, you, you know, you if you want to light hacking, full spectrum light at an artificially set time in the morning is what you want to work on. Nothing else don't want to do light light boxes later in the day or in the evening that'll deregulate you perhaps
0: that's so So. interesting because I hear so much different stuff when it comes to light you know obviously going out in the light the open you know the open air where you've got the full spectrum of light is the ideal however let's say for instance you live uh, or you spend most of your time in an office where there's lots of artificial light around you fluorescent tubes Uh, computer screen, maybe mobile phone, then um, I don't know, because of the the frequency of the light is so peaked. The color of the
1: light doesn't matter so much. It's it's the intensity by far that matters. The brain actually will, the intensity, two things that matter more than color. So like the whole blue blockers thing, color is not even like second or third in the list. The first thing is intensity and the second is position. Your brain is looking for light right there. It sees light right there. Oh my gosh, it's the sun. Reset. If it sees light on your desk, it's a weak signal. So it'd be better to put on uh, those like 70 shades that have like, you know, gray at the top and kind of more open in color at the bottom that that, that don't block colors. Those Mm. would be better for sleep hacking at night is to work work with those. Dim the overall uh, brightness of light, period that will allow melatonin to climb a lot faster than any particular color of light being restricted. Mm, it's intensity. Mm. And even waking up in the middle of the night and looking at your phone, bright in the middle of the face, delays circadian phase by one hour, that's it. And the body can adjust by one hour every single day naturally.
0: Right. Mm. That's not a deal. Do you have any kind of like quantifiable like evidence on this, what you're saying, like you know, any kind of measures that you've done yourself? Um or um, I don't know, I mean, peer review studies. I've done a lot of something...
1: circadian research and, and mostly yep. in animals actually in undergrad. And I've I've mapped okay. the systems in the brain that do circadian entrainment and sexual behavior and it's related to the sun and things like that in rodents actually. Oh. But um there's lots of research looking at this particular stuff in humans as well. It, it, light is only really powerful in the morning. The, one of the people I would probably pursue his research to look this up is Andrew Huberman. Um, he, Dr. Huberman at, uh, I think, Stanford is uh, uh, very much into this end of the pool in how light, how timing, um, how uh, the gaze affects your brain. Mm. So Dr. Huberman is probably, you know, you should get him as your next guest to really unpack some of the aspects of light because he's the guy who sort of disabused my notions about... Um, the color versus intensity
0: question.
1: Mm. And it, it is, and actually I saw some, re, I've seen some research as well from other people like James Swanick from uh, Swanee's uh, Blue Lockers. Um, James did some research too, showing that it's intensity that seems to really cause the problem. Like in some of his first examining the effects on the, 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 the brain of the glasses he was pumping out. But this is not a poorly understood phenomenon at this point. There's lots of studies, if you go to PubMed and search, you'll find yeah. intensity mm-hmm. matters, not color. It really is a much bigger issue. And that circadian entrainment is a mourning phenomena because of the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the SCN. We have wow. a nerve cluster that crosses behind the eyes called the super, called the optic chi, the optic X, for the Greek letter, you know, chiasm, it's a cross. Mm-hmm. And each side of the retina behind in the back of the eye, there, uh, there's, there's this nerve cluster that diverges and then resorts. So we end up with the left visual field uh, in each eye gets mapped to the right hemisphere, and it sorts itself. The chi is actually kind of doing this weird split thing. And right above the optic chiasm are two little nuclei, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the SCN. And the only real big job of the SCN is to sample the color of light hitting the retina and tell the brain what time it is. It's the master reset. And then it sends other processes out to the hippocampus and hypothalamus and other sexual areas and does all the timing-based you know, resets in the brain. And the brain does <clears throat> downstream flooding of timing signals and then resynchronizes all the body clocks and all the other modules everywhere else. They're all individual modules. The SCN causes the master reset. The brain's hormones cause a cascading realignment of all the, the clocks, if you will, mm. um, and then, of course the cellular clocks as well that seem to do other processes. But the SCN is only impacted by light first thing in the morning, that color of light and that intensity of light that's you know, blue and bright on the horizon.
0: Right, so would you suggest that early in the morning you should get out immediately to get everything all yeah, set, set up? Yeah, Yeah. yeah. opening yeah. the window is enough, then it going is out is
1: Yeah, it generally is. And honestly, again, back to the idea that color is not as important as brightness, you don't have a window, you know, or it's 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. in Sweden or something in, in, in the fall. There's mm. no light, you know, there's no bright light. Intensity, like sitting in front of your bright monitor at 6 a.m is doing some of that, because intensity matters more than, than, than the color of the light, apparently. Mm. So by the same token, don't sit there in your red light bank, that's really bright, at 7 p.m. Because the color, while I know it's not blue, and theoretically shouldn't do anything according to the biohacker you know, wisdom, it's not true. <laughs> All the right. Bright light will actually make your brain think it's first thing in the morning because of the brightness component.
0: You know, so, I do have a panel and I have had it some evenings and there there has been some evenings where I have felt like, damn, I feel, I feel, I feel quite awake right now. I need to do something, you know? Yeah, because you were saying, oh, morning, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, use bright
1: lights in the morning only and do not use any bright lights of any color in the evening. That's the trick on light.
0: Right. So... um just just quickly on that without going too deep into it i've got the the red light panel also has uh, the infrared aspect of it would that be all right to use in the evening yeah probably yeah yeah okay cool
1: very likely i'm 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 a bit more a larger fan of a regular traditional sauna the infrared sauna because right i think the research is pretty clear that the the tissue penetration the heat shock protein sort of systematic response is much larger when it comes to actually heating your body up versus infrared, um, but mm-hmm. if it's you know if it's not doing any versus infrared, infrared's still much much better. You know,
0: mm-hmm. it's like the mm-hmm.
1: good exercise is the one that you do, not the optimal one. If you know infrared's okay, if you don't, if you have a little small apartment, you know, hang a panel on a wall or something. But if you got a backyard, you know, get a cedar shed without chemical treatments in it, and buy a fifty dollar little you know, heater unit sitting there and throw water on it
0: you know, <laughs> finish
1: style. seriously it's much much better for you that sounds um, cool but but yeah i would not use the visible light um i don't think infrared will probably cause any um brain entrainment i don't know for sure but mm. definitely we know the visible light does and, mm. the, and the and the intensity of the visible light is correlated to how strong the brain reacts to it
0: right, So right. my
1: guess is if you're perceiving something in the infrared it could cause the same effect. And I would say, well, how do you feel? you feel a little, little bit jacked up as well? It's probably doing some of the same activation because you may have the ability to respond to non-visible light, you know? So you, there may be something to that, but it doesn't feel like it wakes you up if you don't use the visible, then it probably isn't, is my thought, you know? What
0: about the light on your skin and not your eyes? This sounds a bit weird, but let's say I'm, I'm by the panel. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm naked, but I've got on sunglasses.
1: Yeah, I think the skin can absorb light as well. And I think some of the timing stuff can happen in the skin. It's 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 very particular for timing
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the uh, eyes, that's super chiasmatic nucleus. But the mitochondrial thing can be directly, you know, you, the, the body can absorb light, essentially, and it can do some light exchange stuff, I think, in the mitochondria, right? So um, I, I believe there are some health benefits for Uh, from absorbing essentially light through your your skin. I don't understand what they are fully, Mm -hmm. but I believe that sunbathing early in the day um, uh, develops the body's ability to um, react to light differently. I've seen some studies on that. I'm not sure why that is, but again, that morning lights hitting the skin, morning special in some way. We don't know why exactly, except we developed that way, you know, historically. But morning light is very special. Morning sunlight in the skin appears to be the special flavor versus mm. middle of the day sunbathing or something. Not as right. good for you. I don't know why, mm. but morning light doesn't appear to be as carcinogenic or cause as many problems and many inflammatory stuff. You tan versus burn better. So the body- Less, is tense, seems less intense, less
0: intense probably, isn't it?
1: Maybe, yeah. It seems to deal with it in a different way, so.
0: Mm. Yeah. What about, um, did we cover brain injury? I don't know if we did. I know we talk about dementia. I know you mentioned about brain injury. Yeah, um, but brain I don't know can how much. Produce
1: dementias.
0: I'm sorry. Um,
1: brain injuries can produce dementias. A little scar tissue can produce seizures or dementia focus over time. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know, also a lot of us have mild injuries. It's Not a big deal per se. You hit 40, you a sore shoulder or a knee or some scar tissue somewhere. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, half of all brain injuries are silent. There's no symptoms. And then ten years later, you're foggier, kind of anxious. You can't get rest from sleep. You know, that's about the the, the time course of silent injuries. About ten years, slowing you down, right. making you feel foggy. Um, if you're not in your mid sixties or later, and you're feeling that way, you don't have to. Mm. It might be a brain injury. It might not. You'll never know. You look at the brain. Mild injuries don't show up as such. They show up as this non-specific fog kind of pattern. You don't know if it's because you have brain injury, because you're chronic stress. Or because you're built that way and things kind of just eroded over time but you can change it so in severe injuries you can see it in the brain and then you would train the eeg as i mentioned but you also train the blood flow you know with with, with injuries you train uh heg hemoencephalography. put infrared camera on the head um uh, let's see if i have one here <laughs> i don't have one right here sorry um you put infrared camera on your head and you measure temperature you concentrate and blood and resources surge into your brain you can practice pumping Um, metabolism through blood flow voluntarily in the brain. And over time that produces a drop in fog, it dramatically reduces migraines and it makes peak performers sharper and quicker off the mark. Mm, mm. Because you you have a stable metabolic, you know, oxygen, glucose, uh, et cetera, blood flow. And there's some evidence the brain may produce more capillaries over time. So you end up with like a brain's blood, uh, 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 fuel supply that is sort of stable under all conditions—stress, sleep, and fatigue—doesn't matter. Just hangs out with with rock solid glucose and oxygen.
0: You That's why I want. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. So all my peak performers use that, and, and like you know, my 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 buddy Ben Greenfield has an HEG. All, all my other friends that you know are peak performers—they all have that. And so do all these people with severe brain injuries and also autism, because. Right do metabolic exercise and developmental things causes shifts. So you can pump the blood flow and go after another aspect of this part of the body, not just the regulation, which is the EEG. So you have a, a kind of a wide uh, range of things you can go after in the in the brain, just like the body.
0: You know? mm, that's awesome. You've mentioned earlier about uh, attention deficit disorder. You said um, ADD, but then you said um, ADHD. Did you say that those two things are different?
1: um those two things are diagnostically the same now in the dsm the the big manual that classifies Um, Mm -hmm. they're they're all called adhd since 1987 they've all been called one thing people don't really you know but in in common language people understand add is spaciness adhd is like you know wiggly kid or something um but the diagnostic criteria now it's all adhd with inattention, with impulsivity or combined that's what how, the, how the criteria a psychologist would use. But in the brain, I'm always dropping one level below the, the, the psychological or medical diagnostics into the actual resources. If you're hyperactive or impulsive or disinhibited, your brain tends to make a lot of theta brain waves relative to beta, high theta-beta ratio. In kids that are not sleep-deprived, you can predict ADHD blindly with one single measurement on top of the head, theta-beta beta ratio, with 94% accuracy. Right. An adult, it might be sleep or or attention. You can't really tell it apart, but it doesn't matter. It's the same kind of phenomenon of impulsivity. And then for most people, if you open the eyes, the brain stays stuck in alpha. That's like getting kind of stuck in neutral. It's hard to shift into gear. That's inattention. You can have ADHD with features of extra theta impulsivity, or and or extra uh, alpha inattention, and that's the. The sort of more nuanced diagnostic criteria is capturing those different states.
0: Mm. Is so is there the... or
1: often one or the other, but you have both. Yeah.
0: Is is there a way of changing that if if you have sure. it? There is absolutely
1: meditation changes it over time. Uh, it takes six months to a year usually to, in the literature. Um, neurofeedback changes it in a few months. We make multiple standard deviations of change in a few months, so we just to eliminate um, attention problems and people with attention problems. You know, three to four standard deviation on that bell curve basically so you come in you know if if the middle of the bell curve is 100 points on attention scoring people with adhd are like 40 50 60 you know pretty far down um with a 15 point standard deviation they're like two to three standard deviations off the mean and after a few months of training you know 40 50 sessions they're the same degree above the mean generally it's that's amazing can i
0: just i i just want to get like a A deeper understanding it's probably because i'm a little bit tired and my brain isn't functioning as well right
1: now i I can show you some pre-post images if you want you want to see some
0: oh yeah sure sure let
1: me show you um these are not all adhd but let me show you uh let me share uh, an image with you um oh i'm not actually not not enabled uh for sharing right now Um, oh
0: is there something that i need to do yeah you
1: can you can right click on me enable sharing if you want and then i can share it otherwise i can i can okay uh, share
0: screen what oh gosh no you
1: have to like enable sharing or something it it may be too much hassle right now in the middle of our show to Mm. do but um you can see adhd phenomena pretty reliably on resting brain activity you know it's really quite valid for many people Mm. and we can make two to three well generally we can make a standard deviation of change in executive function resources in both the brain maps and performance every like 20 to 30 sessions of neurofeedback reliably across people and that and wow. a performance that's a that's a performance advantage as you keep ramping things up and you just keep going until you're where you want to be it's not about fixing ADHD it's about well you impulsive or intentive. Mm-hmm. Would you rather not be?
0: Yeah.
1: How much would you rather not be? You know, where yeah. when are you done? It's like fitness, not Yes, medicine. Not like Exactly. When it fits you, It's like, what do you want? I'll help yes. you get there. So I get that. Um, so I often take ADHD people that have been struggling under a diagnostic, you know, stigma. how I can't go to grad school, or my are my kids misbehaving because they're ADHD. And we flip it into wow, look how rapidly and powerfully your brain switches gears. That's amazing. But that's kind of stuck a little bit. Your superpower is now your kryptonite, huh? Let's maybe exercise that and give you range of motion over that resource. And now you can be hyper focused, or you know, novelty seeking. Like the ADHD kid can play video games better than anyone else on the planet. They can hyper focus for 27 hours and a half without a pee break, (laughs) but they can't sit in a classroom for two minutes without you know, because they're relying on the environment to cue the resources, Right. but the resources are powerful when they're engaged properly, when they're lined up with the environment. So this person with a powerful resource, you know, low theta, high, uh, sorry, low, yeah, uh, high theta, low beta, they notice everything and put the ideas together and they're synthetic and pattern matching, but they get stuck in those modes. So you just exercise that part of the brain and over time that supervisor comes online And if they wanna be focused in a boring environment, they can, it just comes up. Oh, I'm getting distracted let me focus. And it shows up out of nowhere. The same way, you know, if you did a bunch of bicep curls Mm -hmm. and then you came to a rock on the street, you gotta pick up, you weren't thinking, oh wait, wait, which muscle was it I worked out? Let me grab that thing, but let me activate my left bicep. It just comes online. Mm -hmm. You know how to use the whole system. And that's what happens when you exercise the executive function, the inhibitory tone and the sustained focus. As they're built up, you use them differently. You know, I joked that if I took you out of a VW bug and put you in a Tesla, your driving will change. You'll know, <laughs> figure it out.
0: Yeah, people no are often
1: like, you know, oh, my kid's really ADHD. They need some therapy as well. You know, maybe the procrastination might be there still. But then the parents calls me, you know, two weeks later and says, I asked him to take the trash out once and he did it. It was really weird or something. You know, like people mm-hmm. who organize. I got up in the morning, my, my kid made breakfast. He's never done that. He made his bed you know? So, or like the person says, I had a rough conversation with my spouse and I wasn't shaking mad afterwards. And I listened because I could pump the brakes on that inhibitory tone, that stress, you know, or I could go into my my public speaking thing without getting dysregulated into a sympathetic activation mode because I, I saw it happening and dropped back into my HRV calm experience mode.
0: Amazing. You know,
1: or my migraines came up and I grabbed my infrared and shut it down before it showed up all the way
0: again really?
1: the, the theme here is control or agency i guess we <laughs> all do this
0: that's amazing that is so um you would mentioned about these different states uh you got beta theta alpha delta could you break down each each type there are and yeah at what point would you expect each one to kick in how we, have we activate all
1: brainwaves well. all the time. You're making all brainwaves all the time. Um, and you're often making the same uh, different brainwaves in the same part of the brain. So mm. certain brainwave states will dominate in certain cognitive or performance states. If you're deeply asleep and not dreaming, your brain's making a lot of Delta. But if you're awake, you're still making delta, not as much in the cortex. Now you're making a lot of delta in the brain stem, mostly in the brain stem, to keep your heart and lungs moving, autonomic things. And then the brain also does some metabolic things in delta. So you, you don't think in delta, you live in it, basically. Right. Um, alpha is a neutral frequency, but there's at least six different things in the brain called alpha. And use it for dropping it in a neutral. You also use it for rapid switching of attention. You, often, you also use it for social processing, mu for like, you know, mirror neurons the a form of alpha. Um, alpha is all kinds of things. And like, again, where in the brain, when you close your eyes, the back of the head's visual. It should go into rest mode, alpha. You open your eyes, alpha should go down. You know, so it's it's, it's kind of like where in particular. Or the cingulate, it makes beta when you want to focus, but if it's stuck in beta, you know, beta is an active frequency. So in, in order going from slow to fast, delta goes from zero to about uh, three and a half or four Cycles per second, waves per second. Theta is four to seven. Um, the top edge of that theta, six and a half, is memory access and creativity and receptive attention. Stuff floods up and bubbles up to you. Um, alpha waves run from seven to about 13. There's a huge range and many things in there. Um, mm-hmm. SMR, uh, a cat on a windowsill, completely liquid, relaxed body, but laser like focus. That's 12 to 15 hertz. <laughs> um, and that is, uh, you've seen these seen cat on the windowsill doing this. That's the opposite of ADHD. So, mm. SMR, you know, and also SMR helps you inhibit seizures and things like that.
0: Um, right, right. Uh,
1: the uh, uh, beta <clears throat> waves above that, the teens, 12, 15, 18, you're thinking that range. You think in the teens usually. And then above that, it's a stressy mind and above that you have gamma and gamma cannot be measured from outside the head people think they're measuring gamma in the biohacking world they are not Um, gamma is uh, 40 hertz roughly and theta is 4 hertz roughly at it's resting the timing phase synchronization between theta and gamma is human consciousness if you break the phase synchronization the 4 to 40 nesting uh, frequencies consciousness goes away anesthesia happens. You can actually measure the coupling on the forehead uh, using very sophisticated, expensive sensors. And um, there's a company that has these uh, uh, depth of anesthesia monitors now in hospitals. They can tell how conscious you are in surgery by measuring this coupling in real time. Wow. But also like meditation for 20 or 30 years increases the gamma coupling throughout the brain. Schizophrenia decreases it. So again, all these things, and then gamma goes from 40 up to at least 200 hertz and, and maybe even above that when these things get faster and faster, they get smaller and smaller. So a delta wave is huge, you know, 10 microvolts, big wave, you know, nice and wide, giant wave, the same gamma, 10 microvolts of gamma, a bunch of little tiny waves, you can barely see them. And when waves pass through layers of tissue to be measured on the outside of the head, that attenuates them. Gamma is below the attenuation floor, you can't see it and things above that 40 hertz, uh, 38 hertz really. Can't see them. So, a lot of biohackers are like, oh, I'm doing gamma. No, you aren't. You're full of nonsense. Gamma's <laughs> up there with words like quantum and detox. It's nonsense. Seriously, if I have one more biohacker tell me about, about their detox routine or their quantum this and that, it's like, really? Do you have any clue what you're talking about? I don't want to hear about your structured water, your quantum nonsense, or anything else. <laughs> it's just stupid. Like, there's no such thing as detoxing other than the processes you're already doing. You can't change your pH. You can't change your alkalinity of your body without dying. The only alkalinity you're changing with your stupid pH water is that of your urine. Change your blood pH, you'll die rapidly. Good job. You know, like these are just absurd flights from reality. And, you know, again, this fits into that same thing. Quantum, if you use the word quantum and you aren't a physicist, you have just lost every shred of respect I have for you. Sorry, we're, we're we're late in our call, and I'm getting a little bit ranty. But, um, this is why you kept me on the phone for ninety minutes, right? You wanted to see what happens. When the, uh,
0: That's it. It's a little experiment. The, uh, the
1: barriers come down. So,
0: anyways, That's yeah. Cool. So
1: there's things I worry about, and there's things we can worry about that are real. Mm, mm. Like your blood, cl- like your your oxidative cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, VLDL. Like your alpha speed for cognitive, you know, stuff. But you can control that stuff. You can't control other things, and people try to hang magical thinking systems on stuff they can't control. And because they think they understand bits of stuff, they end up with bizarre magical thinking. I mean, there's no connection between COVID and 5G, FYI.:
0: Zero. Right, right?
1: Zero. But half my friends that are into, into like biohacking are also into stupid things like structured water and COVID-5G scenarios. It's like, really? I'm so sorry, I used to respect you more before you said this thing about you know the government trying to vaccinate us with a 5g really come on so if, if nothing else i was talking to something else recently the silver lining of this pandemic is i figure out who the idiots and assholes are <laughs> in in the space because it, you yeah. know it's 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 just absurdity you don't have to be absconding from your your common sense to get into science, into biohacking, to work at the edge of what's understood. You don't have to adopt crazy belief systems. You really don't. You can go, I don't understand. And that's okay. You can look at phenomena and not have to think you have the answer. In fact, anyone who t- tells you they have the answer for the brain is lying. It's like if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill them. It wasn't the Buddha. Keep going. You know, this is, if you think you understand the brain deeply, if anyone has the answer for you deeply, they are wrong and or they're full of it. So this is your responsibility to navigate like it was in the fifties, figure out what you got to eat to shred, what you got to lift, you, you know, compound mo- compound exercises. Wow. That's great. But then in the seventies and eighties and nineties, we all sat on machines and worked out this one little muscle, you know, and now we're all back to doing the big five because guess what? They figured it out fifty years ago. Yeah. Oh, so, you know, you don't have to elaborate and go after these crazy things like detox and cause it's just nonsense. There's stuff you actually can do to take control and serve that need to feel like you're making change without believing the guru. Nobody has information about your brain, your experience better than you do. Seriously.
0: Mm, no, all right. true, Stepping true. down off the soapbox. <laughs> 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 no, that was all valid stuff. I enjoyed it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think you mentioned earlier about physical exercise and, um, physical exercise as opposed to a sedentary lifestyle has an effect on the brain as well. Did you yeah. go into detail about that as to, you know, how, how it works?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, it's just inflammatory stuff, you know, not using our tissues. They all kind of fall apart. That's the general one, but the, the statistics on it are something like a sedentary lifestyle. When I say sedentary, the, the threshold for what that is keeps being revised upwards in terms of how much activity, You need to make from a gerontological perspective. We used to say 5,000 steps a day, and then a few years ago, it changed to 7,000 steps a day. You know, roughly is the minimal threshold for activity to not have your body fall apart because of activity, because of being sedentary. Right. Getting less than that threshold level of activity confers the cardiovascular risk equivalent to a two pack a day cigarette habit. Oh, wow. So being that guy who sits on the couch, you know, drinking your soda, playing your video games, a little overweight, a little blood pressure, a little cholesterol. Ah, I'm still pretty healthy. No, you're actually conferring cardiovascular risk equivalent to two pack a day cigarette habit. I Good job. You know. Again, All there's right. things we can control. And mm-hmm. you know, these are easy things to control. This is why I want you, why I us to stop thinking about like research chemicals and crazy ideas and like get our sleep, our stress, our physical fitness our speed of processing, our nutrition, our fasting. There are so many things we actually know that work really reliably across people now and can shore up so much of our need to perform and to not age inappropriately and to actually have trajectories of aging increase. Aging does this thing for most of us. Some of it does this, you know? And you wanna like stop that trajectory early in life if it's doing this, because you're oxidizing early in life, you wanna flatten it as early as you can. That's what most of aging is. It's compression of morbidity taking illness and shoving it in the last moment of life. You don't want to spend 30 years dying. You want to spend 30 minutes dying, you know? Yeah, yeah. And cardiovascular risk factors, sugar oxides in the brain, chronic stress, injuries and wear and tear that are not addressed over time. This is a trajectory dropper, you know? And, and if you work really, really well, you can actually push resources up even after our uh, you know, age of being in our 40s and 50s and things. You can still actually improve um, you know, and just like the body, some things are harder. Like I'm, I, I'm pushing 50. I'm, uh, you know, you obviously are a, a more of an athlete physically. You have more experience training the musculature than I do, but you know, I'm 49. I can still put on, you know, some muscles I'm going to try to put on, I'm trying to shred 15 pounds of fat and put on 15 pounds of muscle on my 50th birthday, which is in January.
0: That's awesome. You know, that's great. And
1: I'm about 185 right now, you know, very doable for someone. When I'm eleven. you know, that's, not a huge goal, but I have a systematic plan mm. to, to go through and take some control. And I'm using tools like this for six <laughs> or eight weeks to, to cut. And then I'm using and I'm gonna use some other tools to make sure that I you know bulk up a little bit. And I'm using TDE calculators to look at you know how I can drag down and then push back up the bulk in the right places. But I can only do that because of people like you who spend a lot of time figuring out what works, you know. Mm. So I'm, you know, I was doing all my time right now watching the buff dudes on YouTube, all their little tips. Oh, wait, what are these guys doing now? The buff dudes. You know, just like being like, what's up, what's up, what's up? So that I can be like, oh, cool. And I know most of this because I've been in fitness and in nutrition and health for like 30 years. But I often focus on this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important as a, as a coach, as a biohacking coach, to walk the talk thoroughly. So, you know, I want to look, you know, like you, basically. So I have the <laughs> head for it already, right? I just need to...
0: That's it man that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's um that's cool. That's cool. Like yeah, uh, funny enough you you work on the you you work on the, the top half and now focusing on the bottom. I've I've been forever trying to focus on the top half because I felt like it's always been lagging lagging behind, you know. Yeah. Um but that's cool. All the tools that you have and in fact I want you to tell me the names of those things again a little bit later sure. perhaps after sure. we done with the yeah, recording. i will put them
1: in the show notes for you, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, what's the difference between a headache and a migraine? I hear people say, oh, I've got another migraine, another migraine, I'm like, yeah. what is that? Like, it's very rare, really I'll get it. Yeah,
1: headaches mm-hmm. are really poorly understood. Um, right. Migraines are neurological, meaning they're from the brain, from brain tissue. I view most migraines as actually vascular, I think they're vascular. Um, mm-hmm. so called a spreading cortical depression, an area of low metabolic activity will sweep through the brain because the brain recruits neighbors to do things, you know, like a low metabolic demand area and it kind of will sweep through the brain. As it crosses influx for fuel, blood flow, those will reduce. And then the brain wakes up again and demands blood flow. And I think what's happening in many cases is a cramp is the blood flow can't open up fast enough. The brain cells are like, ah, and they're starving and you see sparkly lights and other weird metabot nausea and olfactory things, your neurological symptoms before the pain. Right. So what happens is that the cells are starving briefly and having weird misfirings and that's the neurological stuff, the sparkly lights, the, the aura, and then the blood flow recovers and you have the sense of the ache and that's an inflammatory response. Mm. And that's a migraine, you know, it's sometimes hemi, you know, uh, one sided, but not always. It also can involve different systems. As many things called migraines. You have migraines in your gut, believe it or not. The serotonin system, the gut can spasm and produce a migraines type of process. Uh, migraines can be driven by brain injuries. They're kind of like an instability thing, like like a cramp almost, but a failure of blood flow being robust. I think. Mm. We also have tension headaches that can be unilateral, you know, or we can have weird, you know, circadian headaches, alarm clock headaches at 4 a.m. every day, wake you up with pain. That happens to some people. We don't mm-hmm. not understand headaches. They're a mix of muscle tension, they're a mix of the vascular things that I mentioned in migraines, and they're a mix of the brain perceiving pain that doesn't actually exist as a as a trigger, but it's getting some phantom signal from some chemical mm-hmm. or some other thing, or it's interpreting something strangely, like a visual thing, you know, picking up a pain response. But there's no real pain, no inflammation in the brain, you know, headaches are very poorly understood even by headache specialists. When I get headaches walking in the door, people with headaches, um, I want to know if they have this migrainous aura, these sparkly lights or weird kind of cognitive changes or, or perceptual changes as the headache or just before the headache shows up. Uh, sometimes they show up instead of a headache for some people. That's really good news from my perspective because now I can slap an infrared sensor in the head and exercise the vasculature, drop the severity, drop the incidence. But if it's a tension headache, you know, maybe it's a dental thing for TMJ, or maybe you should go see a nuca practitioner to work on the atlas and the axis bones because you have a misalignment, you know, deep in the, in, in the uh, skull, high in the spine, that the junction point. There's no discs in there, just bone on bone mm. for, those, for those atlas and axis, the C1, C2 there. So, you know, you got to, those things can get crimped and produce all kinds of feedback loops in the cranial nerves that, that come out of there and wrap the face in the musculature that's, that's, that's managed, both in the neck, the shoulders, and the head by, those, by the, the afferents that come out right there. So headaches can be all kinds of things that you perceive as head pain that have very little to do with stuff inside the skull. And remember, the brain has no sensory nerve endings. You're not feeling your brain. Can't feel it. You're feeling the blood flow, the vasculature, the meninges that wrap the brain. There's, there's, there's nerves around those, there's nerves in the skull. Feeling that, but you're not mm. feeling your brain. So you're, what you're feeling is in this little tiny top layer.
0: It did make me question, like you'd mentioned about the back attached to the brain. I can't even remember what you called it, but it, it did make me think about the, you know, the the central nervous system. Like, what is what is the connection there? And you know, how is that? That's got to have something to do with sending signals around.
1: Oh yeah, there's there's more traffic coming in and out of those two bones, the atlas and the axis, atlas than anywhere else in the body. It's more highway of nerves, blood flow, everything than anywhere else in the body, and those are free-floating, you know, without any padding, so they not get pinched. Mm-hmm. Um, it, one way you can address those is by seeing what's called a nuca. Well, in the U.S., it's nuca, North American upper cervical chiropractor. In the U.K., I'm sure it's not N because it's not North America. Maybe mm-hmm. it's something else. Uh, but upper cervical chiropractors will do medical imaging of the alignment of the two bones just beneath your skull, and we use fulcrums lying on the side. And we'll, we'll, we'll readjust. It's not like cracking or or like, you know, that kind of adjustment. They'll just put full compression pressure on the bone and get to sink in a half a degree or a degree in angle and then re-image it with x-rays and do like stacking, you know, like look up at the ceiling and look at the vertebrae stacking across the head, look at the rotational, see how it stacks as you rotate. Mm-hmm. So, so UCCA, upper cervical chiropractors. We'll, we'll look at that and if you have lots of weird things and headaches that's one of the things i would make sure someone's at least ruled out is pinched stuff in here because it has such bizarre um you know, feedback loops in terms of balance and pain and headaches and nausea because the cranial nerves we have 10 we have 12 uh, nerve clusters that leave the brain directly and come out and wrap around the body most of the face so most of the nerves in the brain down the spine and then go out from the spine, make a junction, spinal ganglia to control this stuff and then have inputs that way. Mm. But the brain has some direct input over all this stuff. The tongue, the face, you know, that's all directly controlled. So those nerves as they exit back here and wrap around can get pinched by stuff in the neck. And that's what Bell's palsy is. You know, Sailors in World War II developed pea coats, those coats with high um, uh, uh, collars, Mm-hmm. It's not just a fashion statement because of, of the Beatles whatever, you know, the peacoats are, because in the ship, if you cool the back of your neck standing watch all day long, eventually it freezes up and you end up with like, a spasm in your face and you, and, you're, and you can't move your face, called Bell's wow. palsy. So that's why peacoats have this huge collar, is to keep the back of your neck mm-hmm. warm when you're standing watch on a ship with, with uh, breezes hitting the back of your neck all, all night long. And you can still get Bell's palsy for other reasons too, but it's, it's constriction of these cranial nerves. So headaches, cranial nerve questions, or muscle tension questions, you know, or uh, molecular and, and, and musculoskeletal things, become a lot more interesting, I think, and need to be considered. You know, the physical is really important, not just the the firings in the brain at that point. You know, so. Mm. But I'm not a headache expert. I'm just you know, if you have migraines, yeah. Yeah. that's your brain. I'm excited because I can work on it. If it's not your my, if it's not really a migraine. You should go do some Ashtanga, see a nuka person, you know, it's 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 musculoskeletal probably in my experience, but headaches are really poorly understood. Yeah. So.
0: <clears throat> so what about, you, you see with the neurofeedback, if someone is interested in doing this, I understand you do it remotely, isn't it? They don't do. have to do go, go brain to. Brain mapping
1: the full head caps on the head, yeah. you know, and then we do the training. So. We spent a couple of days teaching people to do the biohacking with uh, EEG on your own head. We teach you to stick wires to your head, find the right place, run the software, and then we have remote coaching programs. We usually do four months of virtual supervision. We have a live uh, support system for you, to private access for your team, so you can quickly, but, oh, right location for my head, or you know, help with troubleshooting or something. And we can do the entire program now virtually. Even in 2019, we did a lot of it virtually, most of it actually. Mm -hmm. But in this new world, people not traveling as much, we now send out all the brain mapping equipment to people and as well as the the EEG. This is an EEG amplifier for doing training. And you simply stick some wires on your head. So this this little holes there, Mm -hmm. simple training would be a couple, you know, couple wires, one there, one there, and one right there. And for you and I, it's really easy to find. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's right. And then for your kid, you make a little part. You go to the mirror, make a little part and stick a wire there with some some adhesive paste briefly. It's not hard to do Mm. and we teach you how to do it. And then you run the software and we watch what's happening. And you tell us how you're feeling later on. My sleep did this, my stress did this, my migraines did this. And just like personal training, this is very iterative and very individualized so the brain maps and the attention test give us the sort of perspective on what might be the lowest hanging fruit and the biggest resources you might want to go after and then you sort of um uh you, you, you sort of um uh bear, sorry i just got interrupted Bear for one second you have to edit this um, it's all good um so the brain maps give us a starting place and help us understand what you might have in terms of the biggest resources to work on and some of the things that are easy goals to sort of to accomplish. But then when you actually start training your brain, I mean, I'm sure you experience this when training individuals, you think, you know, it's going to happen, kind of, but every person's different and every mm. person needs to have the workouts and the specific interventions adjusted for them, you know, and it's kind of like I'm training brains I mean, the metaphor would be if you wanted, uh, I don't know, to do a chest press and I had no idea how tall you were. And I go, all right, let's, let's try a machine set for a five foot person. How'd that feel? Oh, I don't know. All right, maybe you're six feet. Let's try that. Oh, that felt better. So there's a lot of that in neurofeedback. I can't actually get a very clear sense sometimes of what all will change. So we'll end up um, trying very broad things and then building up an understanding of your brain over time. And we can do that if you're in our offices. Most of them are in the US. I'll be doing some services in uh, in the UK and in, in Copenhagen, but most of our mm-hmm. big offices are, are stateside. Um, or you can do it at home. And it doesn't really matter where you're doing it because what I'm really looking for is, well, what happens later? How do you feel later? Because yeah. that's the piece of it that will guide what happens next. And if you're a good self-reporter, oh, my sleep did this, my stress did this, my mood did this, my ADHD did this, my seizures, my migraines, I kind of just need to know, well, what happened? And then I can give you the next thing to push on your brain and we together develop a better sense of You know what's going to work for you over time so
0: that's amazing is it actually useful for people that just want to optimize their brain or do they have to have some sort of defect going on
1: yeah um no i'd say about a third of my clients are ultra high performers creatives athletes ceos um people that really don't have anything wrong but might not function like you were saying at the beginning of this this call every not every day is your best per se you know, you're a high performer, but some days you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm dragging or whatever. You don't want to you know, do the task, put the effort in. Or if you do put the effort in, maybe you're not as performant or as flexible. Or if you are, maybe you're irritable or tired at the end mm-hmm. of the day. And those are not a problem per se, but if you're trying to really push, 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 I have a lot of people, both in the sort of business world, you know, CEOs and executives, as well as the creative world. Um, both in uh, pure creative, you know, music and art, and athletic stuff, you know, uh, performance, if you will, stuff. And all those those arenas will benefit. Musicians tell me they can get in the zone of their music. They're, they're visualizing music instead of reading ahead on their piano pieces, mm. or they're emoting their music instead of thinking about what they're playing. Mm. Um, athletes, and this is a lot in golf. A lot Golf is very mental, as you may know. And dropping your mind out of the process, you can release, the proper overlearned, you know, body mechanics is really the key in golf. And there's nerve back systems, actually practitioners whose entire job is working out on golf courts with a a system. They follow golfers around and they train the brain to be in the zone while they're golfing. So, you know, athletes, the NFL uses this a lot in teams to offset the wear and tear. You know, those guys, you know, there's really serious high end guys with a mild concussion. There's no performance issue. But they want to make sure there's not going to be one later on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You know, because we know now that repetitive wear and tear of that type, American football type, produces seeds of uh, dementia eventually. Mm-hmm. So repetitive wear and tear, brain damage does produce little areas that oxidize more rapidly and produce Alzheimer's like phenomena, CTE, we call that, you know. But okay. you can work out the brain and shrug off all that inflammatory uh, stuff if it's mild to moderate. So,
0: Mm, mm. Yeah. awesome awesome would you say it's similar to like whether a person is uh, w- doing neurofeedback remotely or if they are in a you know do you call it a center or a yeah, clinic training or center yeah training center is it is it pretty similar would, could it is, is it just as good if they was to do it from home
1: yeah it is it's the same software okay it's the same people making decisions and supporting you um, so cool. More actually, because you have a whole team jumping on, you know, on your on your Slack channel when you have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 difference is some people aren't great candidates for self training. Um, mm-hmm. If you're suicidally, suicidally depressed, have a huge amount of trauma, and no other support systems, you're not a great. This isn't a good thing to do. You know, you get sore going to the gym, you get sore doing neurofeedback, you're stressed and sleep are thrown off here and there. Mm-hmm. You don't want to work with acute psychiatric stuff on your own, and also like. Every so often, somebody sneaks into my my remote trainer program who's really ADHD, and they don't train. They just don't they just don't, don't do it. They don't they don't like get the sessions in three times a week. Mm. So I'm not sure what the equivalent metaphor is, but I don't want people buying like the treadmill and hanging your laundry on it to <laughs> dry. Like that's like you know. And this yeah. is a few grand of hardware and software. This thing's a thousand bucks. This amplifier and mm. the software is about the same. I don't want you like getting all excited, getting your brain mapped, getting this stuff, and then shoving it in a drawer. <laughs> you know i'm happy for you to like re-engage but that's the concern with some people is the execution on it Mm -hmm. um now we're actually having coaches actually schedule your remote visits for some people that want like an extra amount of hand holding they just schedule the, the the self training and then the person works for them to set it up every single time most of my clients i'm like you would just grab some hardware and software do a workshop at the beginning and then have a shared log of your four months and a live support system. So we're checking in a lot constantly. You're like, oh, I'm setting up, but today I wanna to be more focused. All right, why don't you go up to frequency on this protocol? Or Amazing. I trained yesterday and I couldn't fall asleep. All right, let's do this today and you'll feel really chill. You know, So we're always kind of iterating and teaching you about the process of training for that four month course. So the home trainers get a different process. They really get self skills as well as effects. Mm-hmm. Like my, my, my buddy, Ben Greenfield, has a system trained up on it but he continues to train even after you get rid of his brain fog and some impulsivity because he's like great i'm out you know do my bow hunting or something and, like get back in the zone with his neurofeedback gear and then go back to bow hunting
0: why not kind
1: of <laughs> but, like you, you can use it lots of ways <laughs> yeah
0: you know it
1: doesn't have to just be like fix my seizure it can be like make me a better listener to my wife <sighs> you know, i get calls from ceos all the time after doing alpha-theta neurofeedback, which is flow state and access consciousness training, creativity, and also boost your immune system pretty strongly, Mm. Um, these guys a few months in will do a lot of alpha-theta for creativity in theory. And Mm. more than a few times I've gotten calls from their spouses the next day (laughs) or email, thank you so much for whatever that thing you did yesterday was, because we had the best conversation we've ever had. They were calm, they were nuanced, they were sensitive. <laughs> you know, you can decide to be that way and work those resources out. Nothing wrong with being a bit of a jerk. It's not an illness or mm. being too rigid rigidly to to stress, but it's also not something you have to tolerate per se.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: so that's that's really the the take home message is you have control over a lot of things, even things where you feel like your brain is not behaving or it's not you know following along, and that can be acute stuff: seizures, ADHD, autism. It can be really mild things like. I'd rather not be burnt out or short with my my partner at five p.m. You know, or I'd rather sleep more deeply. So I because I'm gonna you know like we can actually hack deep sleep. You know, think about the difference a twelve week program for an athlete where you could continually boost deep sleep, slow wave sleep throughout those twelve weeks. Think about the muscle, like the mass differences you could put on, a few insane. pounds at least mm. by just keeping deep sleep. You know, hour and a half or two hours all the time across 12 weeks
0: you know you could do that that's brilliant that is amazing yeah. <laughs> i'm in i'm in um yeah so well, get some gear. yeah so, so a person who wants to get involved what is what is the website they need to visit and uh, who do they have to, to speak to are there loads of different practitioners that they speak to yeah. you and what's yeah they, there's uh, about
1: five uh, um uh, in our company we do this you know virtually it's a whole team and so you can right. hit the website peak brain institute or put them on social media, someone will send you information, we have a, a whole process and the process changes a little bit depending on um, if you're doing it to yourself, you get a whole group, your coach or clinician doing it to other people, it's a little bit of a different pricing and relationship depending on who we are working with. Mm. Um, if you have a, if your coaching roster, I wouldn't charge you the same for all your people, for instance, I would working with them one on one. So, we have different, different ways of doing distributed and remote training. But for the average person, it's a pretty basic program. And I manage the neurofeed the, uh, the brain mapping analysis for everybody. And then we have a handful of senior coaches who become your, you know, your, 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 person, your person to teach you stuff. The person makes sure that I haven't forgotten about you. So every week I'm case reviewing with them about you. Um, and then the whole team, me and your coach, plus all the other support people are on your Slack channel. We slack and give you a dedicated um, support system. So people can put h- 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 people can hit us up on social media or our website and we'll send you the program information. Um, because there's a lot of hardware and software options, we like to sort of say, here are all the options. But essentially it's about a, you know, two or $3,000 set of hardware, depending on how you configure it. And mm-hmm. it's about three or $4,000 in services. And that gets you four months of acute coaching, you know, a lot of support. And then you have a good solid year of training ability because the clinical software has a year license on it. So you can keep, you know, cranking on those creativity or peak performance resources without Mm -hmm. ongoing cost.
0: that's the rough
1: shape of that program.
0: Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask you about pricing. So there's no set pricing as such. It just really depends on each individual as to what they want to get.
1: Yeah. Well, Peak Brain does one price for brain mapping, the assessments are 500 bucks US or in the UK, it's 500 pounds. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a one-time fee. And we remap you without charge. One weird thing we do is we give you access to the, equipment after your first one for more data mm-hmm. gathering without any charge. Um, we It's an ongoing education process for that first 500 fee, you know? Um, and then the training, you know, it's kind of like the process is always individualized and it always requires the same rough set of equipment, but some people might need different gear. Like if you have migraines or autism, you need the infrared blood flow training. But mm-hmm. if you don't, you don't really need that. That saves a thousand bucks on the kit, you know? So the kit is two and a half grand or three and a half grand based on if you need infrared blood flow sensors or infrared cameras that you can attach to your head. And then for everyone, we do a four month coaching program, but within that program, we're doing very different things. Some person, it's bringing back eye contact or dropping sensory integration issues for autism. Someone else is helping them you know, shave time off their mile. Someone else is helping them like you know, uh, do their musical recital with better creativity. Someone else is shutting seizures down or you know, mm-hmm. getting ADHD. Always individualized, and some people have longer courses of training because different goals and different types of change. But in general, you know, um, it's roughly the same program, just depends on how much gear. And there's some options you can buy nicer, you know, software games and things that are add on cost.
0: Mm-hmm. But, um,
1: you know, we charge less for a home deploy program where you own the hardware than a therapist would charge you for a four month program in their office, yeah. or about the same, maybe. So it's about the same cost way that you're front loading the cost because you're buying your equipment, and then you're getting deep into it. So for the biohackers and the self-trainers, the mom with autistic kids, or the person who's far away from a city, it's great, same process. But a lot of the bio, a lot of people who are doing home training are folks that are really have a longer trajectory with this stuff. Biohackers, mm-hmm. the people with brain injuries who've been training for a year or more. Um, you know, people that want to really, really get deep into the technology because now it's an, it's, a, it's an educational relationship as much as it, as it is, uh, anything else. So.
0: Awesome. So the website is peak health, peak brain institute. No, oh, my bad.com. Peak brain And the Instagram account is
1: peak brain LA.
0: Peak brain LA. Yeah, all of
1: our socials, uh, Facebook, Instagram to peak brain LA. Um, and I'm Andrew Hill PhD in my Instagram, but that's mostly pictures of baked goods. <laughs> of All right. With lots of recipes. You want some great recipes for different breads and cakes and cookies. Occasionally <laughs> they're gluten-free and low sugar. But they're <laughs> often kind of high carb too, because I did this metabolic flexibility thing. Right. I apologize biohackers who are cringing at the idea of eating wheat. But I do <laughs> um, my functional medicine doc, Dr. Hans Grun, is amazing. Mm. Pointed out in my genetics that I have no problem with, gluten mm. i shouldn't probably eat a lot of wheat because i have some issues with wheat but gluten itself is okay so that gave me permission to like re-embrace my 15 year old baker skills you know and start getting more deeply into it during the pandemic so but i have not stopped at sourdough i've gone all pretty far afield so um if people want non-brain things to check out i have lots of pretty pictures of loaves of bread on my right. Hill, phd is that instagram
0: Cheers, I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, you Thank you very much for your time, Andrew. I truly appreciate it. It's been, pleasure, it's been incredible. It really has.
1: Nice to talk to you. We'll have to get, you know, face to face at one of these points or get one of our colleagues over there in London to do a brain map on you soon. Oh. And then uh, my hunch is we can do another show and talk about your brain if you wanna, you know, air your 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 secrets a little bit in your speed of processing and stuff like that. We could always do it on the air for you. So
0: Oh, that'll be exciting. That would be. I'll definitely be up for that for sure.
1: Yeah, we'll have to arrange some video content of you getting your your, your head mapped, so folks can see what it's like. Oh my god! Can, you know, Julia Child, here's the the brain I prepared earlier, kind of thing, you know.
0: Mm. they so. mm. They'll be surprised, Be like, Is that his brain? <laughs> It'd be fun though. It'll be great. All right, Andrew. All right. Thanks again. Let's uh, yeah, let's catch up you. soon.
1: All right. So talk to you soon. Take care. Yes, Bye-bye.
0: you take care. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in today's episode. Any guests which I have on the show really provide some golden nuggets and useful life-changing tips. So always feel free to check out their social media platforms or website links, which will be written in the show notes. These shows are financed by my sponsors, so your contributions are always greatly appreciated. Any clickable links with discount codes